And ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the prosecution is not going to get that man today. No. Because I'm going to get him. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to this edition of the Hagman Report. Wow. We're back after the Christmas holiday snow day. Oh, I guess we have a little video issue at the moment, but we're, uh, we're pushing forward again, you know. It's the, um, it's the snow. It's the cold. It's, it's the, Hazardous uh, conditions. Yeah, broadcasting live from Northwest Pennsylvania, uh, where we we've had what uh, seriously six feet. Yep, six feet of snow. Yep, uh, sixty-five. Christmas Eve, and counting, we got another one right around the corner, looking to dump a few feet. That's right. Possibly through tomorrow and this weekend. All right. So, okay, those people who are listening or viewing on YouTube, there's going to be a reset. You're going to have to refresh. Eric forgot how to do his job. Yeah. Give it, give it a couple of minutes. Um, in fact, we're going to be just audio. How's that? That way that'll give you time to do whatever will be audio for the next few minutes. But, um, it's good to be back. I hope everyone, we hope everyone had a great Christmas, uh, spend time with your family. And if you didn't get a chance to do that, then certainly spend time in reflection or whatever, perhaps whatever you, you wanted to do. And, um, we're just so happy to be back. Our first, we, we got a great show lined up for you tonight and actually for the rest of the year. Our first guest, of course, you heard him first, or you, not first, you heard him here. Uh, Cody Snodgrass, the former CIA asset. He was in a motor vehicle accident on uh, December 21st, which was just two days, I believe it was, after he appeared on the Hagman Report. I'm not saying that anything is, not saying that that had, it's just a reference to proximity or chronology, I suppose. This is his first interview post accident. And, um, he, I know he appreciates your thoughts and prayers. And he's going to spend the first hour with us just, uh, talking, uh, in generalities about different things. And then hours two and three, we got, oh man, special guests lined up for you. We've got, uh, in hour three, Mark Olshaker. Now he, uh, I don't know how many people know of the, of the book Mind Hunter, Mind Hunter inside the FBI's elite serial crimes unit. There's also course, a, a, a serial, Netflix. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I started I've watching. That. I started, there's a, yeah. it's season one, I believe. And I can't, I, I saw that I watched three episodes of it, but I can't remember watching it. No, it, I'll but tell you what, I'm it's gonna good. I'm going to go back and check it out because it did look good. Um, but yeah, I did not know that this was him. Yeah, he's in. The, in fact, when I told my wife um, the, today, before I left for the studio, she's like, "Wow, that's great!" Because uh, we're both fans of that series. So it, that's that's going to be good. And of course, second hour guest is Andrew uh, Drapper from the UK. The Red Pill Report. Yes, yes. So it's going to be a great show. And uh, so we do have video. There we go. 
We have vid- videos back up, and Cody is with us. All right. So having said all of that, by the way, uh, for those Patreons, and I just want to push this really, I, I really want to, I, I want to talk this up. The Hagman Report, we've got a Patriot, uh, what would you call it? Patreons forum, a forum. Yes. Um, for Patreon members. It's, it's one of the perks that you get when you help us out, when you keep us on the air. We are going to be putting a lot of information out on that forum, so do join, please. But we have to continue to populate it with content yeah. because we rolled it out. We we started to uh, put some content up there, and then well, it, it's, it's, we've had like a break from from the content, so we have to. But I, to I, I was on there thing. today, and and I put some things on there today, responded yeah. to some things. But we're going to be uh, that's where we're going to be spending a lot of our time. So I, I do want to invite everyone to join the Hagman Report forum, and you do that via Patreon. And we thank everyone for, for helping us stay on the air. But it's gonna, it's really, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm excited about that because that's a really great, uh, place to share ideas, to share guest suggestions, and to, just to talk about current events and what have you. So I'm gonna be spending a majority of my time there. Also, I wanna remind everyone, five hours of programming, um, 9 to 10 a.m. Eastern time on Blog Talk as well as Global Star Radio Network. Doug Hagman Radio Show, and of course, 2 to 3, Joe and John, their show, 7 to 10, the flagship show. In case you've all forgotten because of the Christmas holiday. Yeah, so five hours of programming there. And uh, the other thing as well, do follow us on Blog Talk. Do follow us on our social networking feed individually and as the Hagman Report. And also tell others about this program as well because we all have to stick together. And speaking of sticking together, we are so, so glad that Cody Snodgrass is with us, and we're so glad that he is recovering from his motor vehicle accident, the accident he had uh, last week. What a way to spend Christmas, kind of kind of snookered up by a uh, car accident. Cody, welcome to the program. Back to the program. Oh, thank you. It's- really great to talk to you guys i want to tell everyone happy new year and uh every day of life is precious indeed it is i'll tell you something i don't remember the last time we we got so many emails and uh text messages and twitter messages and all sorts of things making you know just wanting the information to make sure you were okay and it's so glad to hear you um to the extent you feel comfortable, uh, do you mind telling people what happened? Yeah, um, this yeah, the timing of all this. You know, we were on your show and we've done a bunch of shows, and uh, the timing of this this accident is really suspicious. On the surface, you know, it appears to be just an accident, but there's some really strange things surrounding it, which. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to get into. Uh, I'd also like to thank all the people we've been getting mail and emails and physical mail, all kinds of stuff, uh, for, from people's prayers and, um, you know, all the good, good people out there. I really want to thank everyone. So, um, yeah, what happened on this wreck? Uh, um, we were around Buena Vista, Colorado, heading back from, uh, Hot Springs. We had some people from Ohio down here um, at the healing at the Star Lodge Healing Center, and um, 
back approximately eight miles east of Buena Vista coming uh, up a road called Trout Creek Pass. It's a mountain road. It started snowing, and there was a young woman who was tailgating and going too fast, and she hit her brakes. And then uh, instead of hitting a car in front of her, she just turned straight into us. We were in a 2017 Hyundai all-wheel drive vehicle. And uh, we were doing about 35, 40 miles an hour, and she was doing about 55, and uh, it ruined the whole side of the car, total both vehicles, and uh, knocked knocked out all the windows, the side airbags deployed. Um, we were all seat belted in and um, knocked us off. There was about a 800-foot drop-off.
this woman did not tell the physical therapist anything. She just said, what do you think about this? And she goes, it looks like a, you've been microwave burned. And she also received strange calls from people uh, who were lying about where they were. They said they were down in Arkansas, but they uh, were really in Oregon. And so there was a bunch of strange things that happened. And then the very next day, of course, uh, I had my accident. And so that was the only accident on the whole road the whole day. Uh, going and coming. Um, so there was a series of strange events that preceded this accident. And uh, one of the, the women who was, a, like I said, a minister down in Nicaragua, she suspected some type of demonic or occultic activity. And the strange thing about all this is about a few days before this interview, I had a dream at night where... Hillary Clinton's face was superimposed over my girlfriend's face. And we had sex in the dream, and I woke up, I immediately got my prayer oil, frankincense and myrrh prayer oil in my Bible, and I started praying, and I put, you know, crosses of the prayer oil all around the house and commanded that all this darkness leave. That's a very strange dream. And, um, the witchcraft cults, they do use sexual magic and dreams and so forth. It's uh, been well documented throughout history. The Wicca, you know, um, they use sex magic rituals to manipulate and control people. So there, there's a whole series of things that were strange. The very next day after this dream, I had a pastor from Florida call me, and I told him about this dream. It was very strange. And he told me that several men in his group that were pretty high up in their in their church group, that they had had similar dreams of Hillary Clinton coming to them. Now, this is all strange, and it's, it's very strange. But, you know, on the surface, this car wreck looked like a car wreck, you know, just a... Uh, an average run-of-the-mill sure. car wreck. But sure. when you put all this stuff surrounding it, uh, into context, it's it's very very strange. And then this girl that hit us, uh, I walked over to her after I, I was out on the ground for a while. I, um, I I lost consciousness for a little while and then got up. I walked over to her. The first thing I wanted to do was beat her up. I was really mad. All my anger came up. I wanted to hit her for being stupid. But I pushed that aside. I prayed. I asked Jesus to come to me and, and help me. Uh, and then I walked over to her. And instead of hitting her, I hugged her. And I looked at her, and her eyes were very strange. And I said, why did you turn into us? It was a two-lane road. You turned directly into oncoming traffic. I said, you could have killed us all, plus yourself. Right. And she looked at me with a very strange look, and she says, I don't know. I don't know what happened to me. I don't know why I did that. I don't remember. And her face was real strange, and I don't know if she was possessed or what happened to her. She was just in shock from the wreck. But when you combine all these events together, it just seems very strange that there would be a series of things like this. First, one of the women... You know, her husband, her ex-husband disappears. The next one gets microwave attack. And uh, so we called Dave Hodges down 
the Common Sense Show and let him know about it because he knows some of these people. And uh, there's been a lot of targeting. There's been a lot of demonic activity. We talked to our pastor of our church up here in Lake George, uh, and he, he I asked him, have you seen a lot of strange activity lately? And he said, yes, there's been birds he's known a long time. They, they've been acting strangely. Um, there's been more reports of uh, family and domestic stuff. So I don't know what's going on. Um, but on the surface, this this thing looked like a regular wreck. But when you put all this other together, I'm just not sure. No, I, I certainly can understand that. And a lot of people might might take issue and say, "Oh, that's just you know crazy talk." But you know what, what I like to tell people, I like to say this often: it doesn't matter what what we believe, meaning we, the listeners, and all of us. It matters what they, the opposition, the satanic what they believe and certainly i believe as well that there is i mean obviously the war is spiritual in nature manifesting in the physical and and i i never used to believe that but the more the older i get the more i see man i'm believing this a lot so i don't doubt that um you, you know this this manifested this is indeed a spiritual attack um but 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 praise God that you're you weren't killed. Um, wow! I mean, it, it, because when when I heard about this, I you know I immediately thought the worst, and then but but I'm I'm, I'm so thankful you're uh, you're relatively okay. And did you tell me there were others in your vehicle as well? Yeah, there were two other people. They were the people from uh, up in Ohio. And uh, one guy, he went back and forth to Illinois. But the, the thing with it, you know, we were doing, we, we never charge uh, for our healing work. Uh, we, we always uh, try to do the good, the goodness. Uh, down in other countries in Central and South America, people don't have money like they do up here in America. But this girl had had a, a, a bad childhood and was trying to heal up from that. But... Um, the, the thing about this was that they had a, a Avis rent car, and so after this all got this happened, the the back axle got knocked out of this car. The collision was so bad it was sitting on the ground with the wheels wow. uh, jammed in the fender wells, and uh, um, so we had to call an Avis uh, rent car. They had to get one from the Colorado Springs Airport, put it on a record, drive it out there, give us a new car, put the other one up. And that took about four hours. It was snowing and it got dark, so we had to sit in this car for about four hours. The motor was still running. We had heat. And the highway patrol put uh, yellow evidence uh, tape around the vehicle. But the neat part about this was that during that four hours, about 10 or 12 approximately, different people stopped. And they saw the flashers and they saw this wreck. There was stuff all over the road, and they had to move a lot of it off. But these people stopped, and you could tell some of them were good Christian people. Uh, they they all stopped and said, hey, do you guys need help? Do you all need some water? Do you need blankets? And it was such a wonderful thing to see this outpouring of goodness, you know, and uh, it really gave me faith in, in human nature. Uh, there may be some bad and demonic and satanic people, uh, you know, like like the Clintons, but um, there's a lot of good people too, and it, it really did our hearts good to see 
stop and get out of their cars and come over. So it was it was absolutely wonderful. Um, yeah, this stuff. You're right. It's 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 very strange. It's very esoteric. Um, there's the Bohemian Grove connection with the Clintons too. Uh, but anyway, whatever happened, I'm glad to be alive. Uh, I'm I'm very glad. Uh, I'm. I was pretty Amen. disabled. I couldn't walk uh, the first day. I couldn't get out of bed. But we're getting back, and we're doing good. And I just want to thank everyone for the prayers because uh, they really mean a lot. Uh, I believe in prayer. I believe that, that that the mental energy, if it's done in a good way, can really make a difference in our world. Absolutely, and I know our audience. We, I really believe we've got we've got. One of the best audiences in the world, if not the best, and then the, the, the people are just prayer warriors. And um, uh, when when we heard about your situation again, uh, so many people contacted us and said, "Just tell Cody that we're praying for him." And um, and I, and I believe that that does make a huge difference. Uh, but what you described, boy, that 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 is really really strange with respect to the. Nightmares, not dreams. Nightmares uh, prior to this, and and of course, um, yeah, you know, man. I never, I never think about stuff like that. I don't, you know, I, I, that's the first time I've ever had a dream about Hillary Clinton. I don't think about her. I don't like her. Uh, I talk about them in regards to the Oklahoma City bombing and you know the CIA ops that we were in down in Arkansas and the different things that happened in Nicaragua and all that stuff. But I don't ever th- think about that. That And this dream was very, very strong. I woke up, just jumped up out of a deep sleep after dreaming this, thinking, what is going on here? And I was getting a feeling of these dark chills down my back, like being in a haunted house. I had feelings of dread. I had feelings of... Um, of uh, fear, uh, it was very strange. And then I got my prayer oil in my Bible, and I, I felt like I was being attacked uh, sure. while I was sleeping. And then that the next morning, that uh, pastor called me from Florida, and I had never ever talked to him before in my life. I'd never answered an email from him. Uh, I, I, I don't know. And then he told me the same thing. He said some guys in his group were having the same kind of dream. So it's very, very strange. Man. You know, you combine that with the content, and um, and you would be in a better position to really explain this, but, you know, when you were on our show, again, I think it was 20 or 48 hours before your accident, roughly, um, and, and, and all of the information, it was just like an information download, and all of the information you shared specifically about the Clintons and about all the Oklahoma City and of course uh Cody Snodgrass is our guest codysnodgrass.com uh and of course his book but it, you know Cody it was just uh we got such a, a positive feedback and, and and so many people that said boy I hope he's got protection and a couple of emails I sent back I know he's got spiritual protection but you know so anyway um yeah. Yeah, we have several prayer groups that like um we have this one prayer group down in Tulsa, Oklahoma. They uh they they 
helping us, but when you go up against the type of evil that's represented by the shadow government here, it's in America. The tentacles go everywhere. It's in banking. It's in the arms and drugs. It's in pharmaceuticals. It's in in the government. Um, we're dealing with a dark, evil conglomerate. Um, I truly believe that a lot of the people in there are are um, sat- satanic worshipers or devil worshipers or whatever you want to call it. Um, it's just like the SS occult division that was in the uh, Nazi uh, SS. They had a special group. This is all documented in history of people that that were Satanists. And Aleister Crowley, you know, uh, he uh, he was the famous 19th century British occultist. Um, he, he viewed sex as the supreme magical power. And the SS occult division. Uh, over in Germany, they use sexual magic and sex rituals. They also went and got the spear of Lazarus, you know, the, the spear that supposedly impaled Christ in the Roman Empire at the crucifixion. And it was believed or rumored that that had magical powers and that any army that carried that before them would be invincible. So they went and got that. They also went, a lot of people don't know this, they went over to uh, Greece and they got a lot of the... Um, magical or um, uh, temple ceremonial items that had belonged to the the oracles at Delphi. And so they were into all this deep, dark magic. And, of course, in Operation Paperclip, which you guys, I'm sure, know about, that's when our OSS and Alan Dulles, um, the director there, they they brought about 200 or so of the Nazi people back over here uh, in exchange for the information. And... um, they gave them fake identities. Uh, there was one down here at Los Alamos. I actually uh, went out to dinner with him one night. Uh, he was a German guy. Um, I knew some other people down at Los Alamos that had worked on the Manhattan Project uh, previously. But the, 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 these people are into Satanism. They are into occultism. And they do use dreams, and they do use magic, and they do use ritual um, and pentagram worship and all this kind of stuff. And so that's the dark side. And, you know, we are the forces of light trying to get the truth out. They're trying to cover it all up with lies. So we use love and they use fear. Um, we use compassion and they use hate. And so that's why I titled that book, Choosing the Light, because I chose to go from the dark side to the light side. And I per- personally witnessed DEA agents uh, that were Satanists, I mean, they had human skulls on each side of their bed, uh, and, and they would do rituals over pentagram, put on black hoods, so forth. So this stuff's real. I just don't, I can't have any empirical data. I'm a scientist. I have degrees in physics and mathematics. I try to stick with verifiable, observable facts. But when you get into this kind of stuff, especially black ops, uh, most of the facts have been sanitized. Most of the pictures are lost. You know, um, it's like the Rose Law Firm down there. They had a fire when some of those uh, records were subpoenaed by the state uh, investigatory committees in Arkansas. And then the same thing happened federally with the Oklahoma City bombing and all the records disappear. So it's real hard to get data that's actually concrete. Sure. 
Yeah, uh, no, I, I agree with you on that, and I know that uh, we had touched on that on your first appearance here. Now, before we get too far down the down the line here, I want to toss this out to you. Uh, Cody, I, look, I, I know, um, boy, I'll tell you what, you, you put your life on the line giving us the information that you know, and, of course, you've got your book, uh, Choosing the Light, but is there the, the question I have is there is it, what can we do if anything to help you at this point is there anything we can do to help you at this point um get through aside from aside aside from uh, praying for you uh is there anything we can do to help you get through this period of recovery or help you in your recovery can our listeners do anything for you oh well um well, you, you mentioned it. The number one thing that I would say, you know, helps me the most is the prayers of, you know, good-hearted people. I believe that those things manifest uh, on the earth. I believe that they manifest uh, in helping defeat evil. Um, you know, we have a lot of people that, that we pray for. We have prayer groups that pray for Donald Trump and, and, and different people. Uh, there's a lot of people like the Reverend we did the radio show with. She was attacked. She really was sick. Um, these these things are real. They have directed energy weapons. They have all this stuff. Uh, but the number one thing that I need now is the prayers because, um, you know, a lot of people might use this incident and say, oh, yeah, send money and donate money and play on the uh, hard strings of people, you know. I don't want to do that. Um, I'm, we, we are all together here. There's no one above the other. All of us walk hand in hand as brothers and sisters in the light. And we have to stand together to confront this evil. Um, I want prayers more than money. I well, want love that. more than fame. Right. Hey, because you've, you've been through it in, in real life scenarios. Of course, Cody Snodgrass, a former CIA asset and the author of the book, Choosing the Light. Um, by the way, uh, sales of that book obviously would help you, correct? I mean, financially. Uh, yes, so- we, yeah, they, they do. Um, we, it took four years to write this book and then all the stuff that's, that's in it is documented very highly. Um, it's very highly dyed, 700 pages. It's a big book, but a lot of that is documentation from the, uh, we have a lot of legal stuff and, and files and supporting evidence that we usually don't have time to give, you know, in the, uh, standard, uh, radio shows and stuff. The sales of the book we did, we have two websites. We have one in Europe, which is Light on Conspiracies dot com forward slash Cody. Right. And then we have one here in the in the US which is um uh Cody Snodgris S N O D G R E S dot com. And so um yeah the sales of the book that all helps and everything too but we also give a, give things away. We've been sending CDs to some of the veterans. Uh, a lot of them are disabled. Agent Orange guys from Nam, and then the, the new guys from Iraq and Afghanistan that got the Gulf War syndrome poisoning. And I think we covered some of that yeah. um, on the last interview. But um, we give we give stuff away to people, uh, you know, that don't have a lot of money. You know, time.
people. Some of them are on Social Security, and they just don't have the money. Well, it's awful. It's really nice of you to do that. Uh, I, I know, I know authors who are very popular, very successful that won't, won't even entertain thoughts like that. And here you are, you know, recovering from, from a very traumatic accident and thinking about others. So thank you for doing that. But, um, but folks, definitely buy the book. By the way, since we had last spoke, I had, um, downloaded a, um, the, uh, it's correctly stated as a PDF, right? I mean, that, that's a correct statement. Yes. Okay. The, the PDF version. Um, and I, I've got to tell you, it's a tremendous book. I don't think anyone would be disappointed by the book. There's so much information in there. It's, I, I, I can't even imagine how you wrote that book. I mean, my goodness. Um, it, it would have taken me a decade to write that book, but yeah, I, I could tell certainly your experience. You, you got a lifetime's worth of experience in that book. Yeah, you try to you know take twenty plus years and and get it down. Uh, there's critical pieces of evidence we do not have because the CIA took them and uh, sealed them, and so um, when you're dealing with stuff like that. Um, it's hard to get classified information or things that have been disappeared deliberately. But I'd like to read on the very front page of this, uh, the very thing when you open this book. Um, I have a quote here. Uh, Everything that is hidden will be found out, and every secret will be known. Whatever I say to you in the dark, you must tell in the light. Don't be afraid of people. They can kill you. But they cannot harm your soul, and that's from Luke twelve two seven. And then right after that is what follows is a hidden truth: darkness and evil exist on earth, but so too does light and goodness. I have walked with the dark ones, learning their secret hidden ways. Now I have chosen the light. May the power of truth protect us, and the angels guide us upon our path. In the end, all path lead back to oneness and to God. That's a beautiful, <laughs> that's beautiful and of course biblical. It's amazing that you picked out, or it's, it says something that you picked out that passage and that scripture. Um, wow. wow. Yeah, so that's, that's the only thing strong enough um, to confront this evil, this vast shadow government deep state you know, I kind of like to think, you know, President Eisenhower, you know, he made that famous speech when he was leaving office, yep. warning about the power of the military-industrial complex. And that can be Googled up for some of the listeners. But um, there, there has been, from the Kennedy assassinations, both the brothers, John and Robert, and uh, Martin Luther King, and, you know, the Oklahoma City bombing, and 9-11, and all these false flags and all these strange occurrences, when you start digging into them, there's a pattern. There's a pattern of deception and darkness and evil. And uh, if you turn off like your listeners do, they, you know, a lot of them probably turn off the TV and don't listen to the mainstream media quite so much. Uh, it's lost its credibility. All this stuff. I'm not the only guy stepping there's a lot of other people 
But the key is, you know, I have my little piece of the puzzle, and I'm hoping by doing what I'm doing and risking things like car wrecks or, you know, slipping on a banana peel or whatever happens, that other people will come forward and step forward. We've had a lot of people write letters here, and they don't want their names used, and they don't want to email or uh, have a phone. They just write a handwritten letter, and there's been first responders at the Murrah building. There's been all kinds of people telling secrets that they're afraid to speak out, and but they're sending them here to us. And, I mean, we have dozens of them. Um, there's a lot of secrets that are going to be coming out, hopefully, and they'll be revealed. And so that's why we all need to pray. We all need to get our minds together and work together to help confront this evil because it's a huge, deep evil. It's been going on for decades and decades in our country and around the world. Absolutely. And and by you doing what you're doing, you're leading by example, which, as you said, is is uh, getting the attention of other people uh, who might have been in the same position you are. And, uh, you know, by doing so, you're definitely laying the groundwork for many more people to come forward and to tell their story not the the story that's been manipulated and, and force fed into the public, but that's all you can do, and then and then hope that you know the people follow suit behind you. Right, and and so there has been many, uh, like I said, these letters. That's the precursor to this. it's like a dam that's that's going to open. I hope that it's a wave of light um, that that precedes the second coming of of Christ, uh, whenever that is. I believe that he will come uh, again and to help us in dark times. Uh, and, and so all we can do as, as, as mortals, you know, here on the earth is to stand in that light and to be that light, to pull that light in through us and be it like grounding rods where, and that's what I try to do here. You know, people go, so many people, aren't you afraid? Aren't you? Yes, yes, I'm afraid. I don't want to get killed. I don't want to end up in a hospital in a car wreck. I've been suffering again through all this, but um, that's not the point. This is bigger than me, the Oklahoma City bombing. This is about all of us as human beings and what we're going to give to our children and our grandchildren when we leave this earth. It's about laying the foundation of light and truth. And that will overcome all this shadow government darkness that's been going on for decades. Our government's become horribly corrupt. Our judicial system is a shambles. There's, there's just so much negativity and division and derision and people picking at each other. And we, we can unify our consciousness and stand in the light. That's what my job spiritually speaking, is to use this platform as the Oklahoma City bombing thing, getting truths out, to be that pillar of light. It's not about fame. It's not about money. It's about our country. It's about our world. This is bigger than each one of us. And that's why we really appreciate your show and your listeners and the people that come together in the prayer and come together in these these wonderful consciousness paradigms of unity and love. And because 
the light of the angels and Jesus Christ, in my own opinion, is the only thing that's going to be strong enough to overcome this evil. We totally agree with you on that. Uh, Cody, are we winning? I, I, I mean, in the larger sense, we, we have Donald Trump coming in. A lot of stuff is being exposed. You, um, on your last appearance on, on this program, it was like a massive data dump, information dump, uh, educated a lot of people. A lot of people are paying attention now. Do you think we're, do you think that we, we have the globalists on the run? Do you think that we've got the, the bad guys on the run, so to speak? Um, are we, I mean, obviously we're better off today than we were, you know, 18 months ago, but do you think that, uh, do you think we're winning? Yes, absolutely. Um, I have to believe that after being in supermax solitary like I was and seeing the corruption in the Tenth Circuit and the judges and that story. We've only scratched the surface when we, we did our little interview. Yeah. Um, there, I have, there's so much more information here about the, the different things like we talked about Waco and a few things there's so much more here but um, the idea is to wake people up and the more people that we can awaken with my little piece of the puzzle we there's other people out there that have been quiet like me I stayed quiet for 22 years I'm so thankful for the opportunity to to speak like this because I, I it was crushing my soul uh, to carry this burden and I know it's got to be crushing the soul of the other people who have done things and, and know what really happened like on the back page of this book uh, it's in big letters on the very last page it says fear of death is a strong enforcer of silence but guilt like heart disease can be a silent killer for the guilty. And that's how I felt. Uh, I felt guilty of all some of the bad things I did when I, I was uh, in the Black Ops world. Um, but to answer your question, uh, yes, I think we are winning. I think that we are making progress and that we have to hold hope up. Um, one of the, the stories in this book, there's a lot of them we haven't talked about, um, was about Viktor Frankl who was a uh, Auschwitz survivor and his uh, wife and children had been separated by the Nazis when when they were all captured and he was in Auschwitz and uh, his job was to take the dead bodies out of the barracks. I realize this may be kind of uh, rough for some people to hear but uh, it's the truth and uh, they the Nazis couldn't burn people fast enough. They had their ovens running 24-7 and so they would pile the bodies up out there in pits and how Victor Frankl survived was they would use snare wire that they'd gotten off a fence and uh, they snared rats in the in the body piles because the rats would feed on them at night and they couldn't eat the rats in front of the other prisoners because they'd start a food riot mm. and they're starving to death so they would eat cold rat at night and that's how he had enough protein to survive. And later on, he wrote a book, and they asked him, why did you go to those horrendous extremes? You know, you're living in this dark place where uh, they're they're murdering. It's not just killing, it's genocide. It's it's crazy. It's never been done before in the world. And, and he said it was the hope 
It was a hope that I would see my wife and children somehow again. And he said that that is the last of the human freedoms. It's the very last thing you have on this earth. When all your clothes have been stripped away, all your family, all your money, everything, and you're facing imminent death, imminent death, any any second, the last of the human freedoms is to not give up hope. Don't give up the light. And so I have to believe that we're winning. I think that if enough of us hold hope out and we keep on and, you know, we face death or we face hardship, that we can unite together as a people and rekindle the spirit of America. That's what my stepdad, he was. He fought in Pearl Harbor and Guadalcanal, and he was right there December 7th, 41, during the Japanese attack. He survived it. Um, we have that story here in the book of, of, of that. But that, those men, he told me this country changed after that, and the spirit started leaving America. We can rekindle that in ourselves and rekindle it in our country. So to answer your question, I know I'm, I'm rambling a little bit, but um, we can't give that hope up. No matter how bad it gets, no matter what they do, what the dark ones do, and all these bombings and false flag attacks and the 9-11 towers and all the things that happen, we have to hold hope out and keep yeah. that hope yeah. and, and fuel it with light. And that's, that's right. why spiritual practice for me is so important. I have my Bible right here. It was given to me back in 1963, and I read it almost every day. It's the one thing I've kept in my life. It's always been with me. And so that's all I can say is that I don't think we're losing. It's going to be a tough battle, and I hope Trump, with all these sealed indictments, is going to be able to uh, stop these pedophile rings. There's nothing that makes me fight. It makes my blood boil than someone messing with children. Now, I just... I go really berserk uh, around that kind of stuff. You know what I've seen, especially with the um, with the letter to Congress that uh, was released on December twenty first, referencing a, a, an executive order, but the um, the economic sanctions against those trafficking in humans and sex trafficking. I've got to believe. And I don't know whether you've seen that, given your circumstances, but um, the the uh, 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 the economic sanctions against human trafficking, and I think it's related to Eric Schmidt stepping down. This is my personal opinion now. Uh, I, I think Donald Trump is putting the hurt on a lot of these uh, these uh, organized pedof- pedophile rings in, in kind of a backdoor approach using economic sanctions, using these various um, different uh, uh, aspects of, of the law. And I think that uh, I'm, I'm glad to see that take place. But like I said, I think I think there's a lot going on behind the scenes that we we are not really processing fast enough in our minds, or other people aren't really aware of because it's being hidden by the uh, mainstream media too. They, they don't want to talk about this stuff. Well, so, yeah, and the media, you know, in Hollywood, there's been a lot of uh, accusations and rumors flying around that some of the people in Hollywood are involved in this. Um, and this gets back again to what we were talking about with the SS Occult Division and the Nazis. This stuff is not new. 
there has been uh, child trafficking and so forth. Um, there's also people that are the hardcore Satanists that believe in, um, you know, sacrificing. And the Mayans uh, and some of the uh, indigenous tribes in South America and around the world, they actually believed in, in uh, human sacrifice. And they used the fear and the energy uh, of that to further their demonic or satanic um, episodes. Um, I I don't want to get involved in any of that. I'm totally against all of that. And I think that um, I hope that Donald Trump is breaking him up. There's a lot of sealed uh, things going on. And like you said, the mainstream media is not talking about it. But all we can do, people ask me, Cody, what can we do? It doesn't matter who you are or where you're at. Just hold that light. Hold that, you know, seek truth and goodness and love. Because that is the only thing. Even if you got to die or you get arrested and thrown in supermax like me, they planted me with false evidence. I have all the proof and the stuff in the book. We never, ever were allowed to even go to court in four years. Uh, I think I told that story. But um, my case is kind of extreme. Uh, but any just regular people in their regular lives, this is a spiritual war, first and foremost. Um, we have to hold this light and manifest it in the world. And the more of us that can do that on a, on a bigger and bigger scale, it, it'll make a wave that's so powerful that these Satanists and these pedophiles and all the shadow government drug dealing and false flags where they blow up our own buildings and lie about it, all this stuff is going to be washed away by this wave. But we have to keep on it. And I, we, like I said, there's several prayer groups that, that we know about that are praying for Donald Trump because if me and that pastor in Florida are all getting hit with uh, these dreams of Clinton and this witchcraft stuff is really real I bet Donald Trump's getting hammered right now I mean he's he's been under attack in the media and uh, I, Lord knows what's going on that we don't hear about in the spiritual realms yeah and, and Cody let me ask you this about the media I've seen a few interesting stories and, and videos kind of doing a year in review 2017 on, you know, media fails from, I saw Jim Acosta's, you know, top 10 meltdowns of 2017. The Daily Caller had a piece uh, showcasing, you know, the media's quote-unquote bombshell stories about Trump-Russia collusion that they had to walk back or admit they were wrong or lied or whatever. Do you see this trend continuing into 2018, or do you think they'll change their tactic on the the way that they approach their attacks of Donald Trump? Yeah, that that trend, they will try to continue it, but what my personal opinion is uh, I've heard there's thousands and thousands of sealed indictments so what's going to happen is if these people are doing pedophile stuff and they're they're involved in, in uh, uh, all of this kind of drug dealing and, and money laundering and all this stuff the sentences on all that stuff's real high and what they're going to do is they're going to snitch or turn and they're going to rat out the bigger people like the Clintons and the Haiti Foundation, and the, the the Clintons have been murdering witnesses for a long time. They did it down in Arkansas. In my book, I have several classic examples with details, dates, nine, names, times. You know, and they write them off as suicide and so forth. But um, 
In your book, by the way, that was one of the most comprehensive sections that I've read about uh, the Arkansides. So uh, I just want to tell people, just that alone is worth the uh, worth the book. But go ahead, sir. Yeah, well, we've been getting letters. I've got several letters here from Nina, Arkansas, from people who don't want their name. I didn't get them, obviously, before the book. I wish I could have included some of these stories in the book. These things are horrendous. That's why these people kept them quiet all these years. And they certainly, you know, I can't say their names. They don't want their names out there, and I understand why. But, yeah, there is there is so much of this. The Clinton thing is a lot deeper and bigger than uh, even I have uh, uh, detailed. But, um, yeah, they're going to keep on, on Trump. The deep state is going to try... Uh, as they're as they're falling and dying, they're going to pull out every stop. Uh, they're going to lie. They're going to deceive. But when these people start rolling on each other and and uh, signing deals for immunity, um, they're going to use that FBI standard tactics will be to use those lower level guys to get to the big ringleaders of the pedophile rings and the, and the Clinton Foundation and all the stuff's been going on. And it wouldn't. I would love to see the day. When Bill and Hillary Clinton are put in handcuffs and they are sentenced to federal prison because I told one of the ministers up here, I said, if they ever get put in federal prison, I want to go do a, a, a prison ministry and I want to look them in the eyes and I want to tell them that, you know, you're being punished for the, the evil and the satanic things you've done all these years president hiding behind the legitimate positions in our government like secretary of state and i want to look at them in their eyes and say you, you're being punished and you finally the light has shone upon you and we send you love and we forgive you now go do your time because they belong in prison wow yeah and, it, and that's our job wow. see about holding the light they're my enemies. I, I truly believe Bill Clinton and them were behind me going in there. My attorney saw Tom Strickland, the U.S. Attorney in 10th Circuit, talking to Bill Clinton himself at the one-year anniversary of the Columbine High School shooting. Um, Tom Strickland sat at every one of my little bond hearings and stuff, um, lying to the reporters at the Rocky Mountain News and never post all this. They had me on the front page of the uh, the paper with all these lies and covered up everything about the CIA and everything. So um, Bill Clinton and them deserve to be in prison for what they've done uh, and on the crimes they've committed. We have to stop the double standard where certain people are put in prison for a crime, and then all these other people are let go because they're in the government. That's not two, fair. Yeah. The, uh, the, the, our republic cannot stand a two-system or two-tier system of justice. We just can't, we cannot tolerate that um, when we see the uh, lawlessness of the, high, uh, the the power elite like Bill and Hillary Clinton, uh, even George W. Bush. And one thing I, I learned from your book, extrapolated from your book, is the, the, the Bill and Hillary or the Clinton Foundation and the Haiti um, earthquake, um, how that, that, Intersected with George W. Bush, I didn't know that before, but but you educated me um, on that. Well, did, but, but, did you know that Haiti is a huge? That the CIA has a huge station down there in Haiti. You, you know, you mentioned that. You mentioned that. Uh, yes, yes, uh, but not until you had mentioned that earlier. 
uh, on your first appearance on our program. C- Cody, uh, but we're out of time, but I'll tell you something. Uh, get some rest. We wish you the, uh, a very speedy recovery and a strong recovery. And, uh, uh, but we're at the end of the hour. Please keep in touch with us. Please come back uh, and, and get stronger. We'll be praying for you. Well, thank you, sir, and to everybody out there, Happy New Year. The light will win. Keep it in your heart. The light will win. And, and, and there it is from Cody Snodgrass, CodySnodgrass.com. Uh, Choosing the Light is his book. Folks, it's well worth get Get yourself a copy of that book uh, via PDF, CodySnodgrass.com. Our best to him after just a horrific uh, accident, a motor vehicle accident last week. One to get him back. It's such a great, it's so great to hear his voice. And folks, remember right back. Stay right where you're at. Welcome back to Hour 2 on this Thursday edition of the Hagman Report. We're going to be joined by Andrew Drapper of the Red Pill Report. And during the break, we were looking at the website, wondering if it was correct. It is the red pill dot report, not the red pill report dot com, but instead the red pill dot report. And we're going to be uh, talking with Andrew about a number of things as he comes to us from London. Uh, he is, it's about two in the morning there, John, three in the morning. So we, uh, want to thank him for making the time to, to come on the show. And he's got an interesting website and I was checking it out. Um, and we're going to be getting into some issues. Something we haven't really been hearing a lot about is Brexit. I'm really curious about where that stands. We know that the uh, politicians over in Europe have been doing everything they can in order to try to uh, walk the vote of the people back and to, to kind of cancel out Brexit. But we're going to get an update as to where that stands, as well as many other things with Andrew Drap- Dap- Drapper. There we go, Drapper. Don't forget to check HagmanReport.com. There are uh, some important stories up there, a few of the more interesting ones. Trump's top nine accomplishments of 2017 on the Daily Caller that I have not posted yet. That's really good. If you get a chance to read it, it's titled Media Errors Covering Trump in 2017. And it goes through this long list of all the quote-unquote bombshell reports that had to be walked back or uh, turned out to be nothing true at all it was all speculation from false anonymous sources and and misreporting and there's a it's a pretty good list and it covers a lot of ground um and it i think it is very telling as to where the media is in 2017 and where it's going in 2018 and again don't forget peter chauka's articles on the right hand side there he has uh, one up from christmas eve and that's about sarah carter joining fox news a uh, very interesting piece there one of the interesting pieces of news today is about the Trump approval ratings, and I find it interesting. There's two stories on Drudge that are very interesting to this title. We have the one mainstream media coverage of Trump just five percent positive, and you look at the coverage of past presidents from Clinton in '93, Bush in 2001, Obama in 2009, and one one of the things that they all have in common is that the media's coverage of them was less than 30% negative, and they had over 25% all uh, positive coverage. Well, Trump, in his category, has 62% negative publicity and 5% positive publicity. 
the other 33% are neither. And at the same time, he is at the same approval rating as Obama was, according to recent polls from Rasmussen and Pew Research. The same, he's at this very same level where Obama was. So for all the media's huffing and puffing, their, their fake scandals, they're trying to demonize Trump and his supporters constantly. The Rasmussen, Rasmussen poll shows Trump is at 46% approval rating, the exact same approval rating that Obama had at this time in his first year in presidency. So that is very interesting. It shows that their propaganda is not working to the extent that they hoped for. And I think after this first year in office, this was the worst, uh, that they're not going to be able to continue to downplay his accomplishments and, and continue to paint that negative light around him. And I, I imagine that that will continue to go up, especially as we see the economy continuing to not only improve but surge in this end of end of the year. We have with us our guest Andrew Dra- Draper of the Red Pill Report. That is Red Pill Dot Report. The Red Pill Dot Report. Andrew, welcome to the Hagman Report. Hi, Joe. Great to be with you. How are you doing? We're doing fantastic. How are you doing? Fine. How's the snow there? It's terrible. It is literally <laughs> terrible. It's uh, you know, we deal with snow up here all the time, but nothing like what we saw over the last few days. It's to the point where there's nowhere else to put the snow, and uh, the and the roads are awful. But yeah, that's uh, what we've been dealing with the last few days. I want to thank you for for. Uh, I know it's it's late or really early where you are for being available to come on uh, onto the show and do the interview. We uh, thank you so much for that. Oh, you're most, you're most welcome. It's one o'clock in the morning here, but um, I work nights, and if if I actually stop talking to you and I start sort of mopping or cleaning or something, because normally when I listen to you, I'm I'm at work mopping and cleaning and the like, and <laughs> so if I think I'm just listening to the podcast, not talking to you, do remind me that I'm actually on here with you. <laughs> we'll we'll do, <laughs> and we love it because one of the in the sort of talking points or whatever, I notice a verse from Psalm eleven, verse three: "If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do?" And I read that and I thought, wow, you know how relevant to today's to the times of in which we live. Um, so much going on, and and I know people don't like it when I when I do this, but let me ask you: with all this stuff going on, and you've got a very very good handle on events, your website, your your entire initiative. Where do we start? Well, uh, the the first thing to start with, I guess, is is if the foundations be destroyed, what shall the righteous do? Go on one verse further, and it says, "The Lord is in His holy temple." The Lord's throne is in heaven. Um, we're, <laughs> we're not defeated. The foundations may be crumbling a bit, but our God is still in heaven, and He's still in charge of you know all the world events. And uh, you know, I, we, we look here in Europe at the, the Islamic invasion, and it may be terrible in times, but then so were the Assyrians and the Babylonians. But they were part of God's uh, purpose to you know to bring Israel back to God. So, you know, there, are, there may be challenging times ahead, but, you know, God is still in his, his heaven. Very true. And God is the foundation, really, of, of everything. And uh, I, think we, I think sometimes we lose sight of that, the, the, the spiritual nature of the battle in which we, in which we are engaged. Um, but, uh, yes, yes, very true. 
good good passages. Andrew, yeah. let's do this. Um, why don't you tell our audience a little bit about the Red Pill Report yeah. and what it is that, that you guys do? Well, I've been listening for a long time to True News, and I, I, I don't know quite what happened, but somehow I sort of cross mingled and found the, the, what was then the Hagman and Hagman Report. I believe you're now just the Hagman Report. Just for, <laughs> so bre- this... for brevity, yes. <laughs> so I came across this and I started listening to the Hagman and Hagman Report. And I, I mean, they both have their, their great points, but I love the fact, you know, Doug, that you're, um, very much got the PI sort of idea behind this and you're, you're very much into research and into, into the facts behind things. And I like that very much. But I'm over here in England, and and you know I, I hear about uh, Trump this and and Hillary Clinton that, and you know the the dark state that you have, and and well, I, I can't find anybody who's talking about these things here in England. And I talk to various people, and I grumble a bit about it, and eventually, you know, people say, well, why don't you do it? So, Doug, you often say you feel very unqualified for the job you're doing. You're not a pastor. You're not a you're not a, a talk show host. You're a, you're a PI by background. Well, I feel that way too. I have been a pastor in the past, but not for many years now. What I am, I'm I'm a hotel night porter. I clean hotels at night. Um, I check people in. I check people out. But I I listen to the news and I hear on on their things. I think well that, that's just not true. It, it doesn't make logical sense. Or, you know, that doesn't relate to what I, you know, sometimes you listen to a, um, a debate in Parliament and then the BBC will report and you think, were you listening to the same debate that I was? Because that's not what happened. But it's the spin they want to put on it. So at the moment, just one night a week, we're putting out a, a, a podcast um, that's looking through the week's news as best I can and saying, well, look, do we need to be paying, you know, just not accurate. Um and uh, that sort of thing and, and generally looking at bits of news that perhaps we should be paying attention to as well you know man you could just go right up there man gives birth um, the BBC reported that a man gave birth um, recently it was on uh, one of the BBC's main programs it was also on the, the BBC website and so on well men don't give birth <laughs> a woman who's claiming to be a man gave birth but you know they, they said they were trying for six months to get pregnant. Well, how did th- there were two men living together? It's, it's a uh, apparently a gay relationship with two men together, but actually one of them's a, a woman. How do two men try to get pregnant? I mean, it just doesn't. I mean, I don't want to go into too much detail about the plumbing, but it doesn't work. One of them has to be a woman, and well, so you know, it's just absolute I, yeah. nonsense that they're talking about there. I got to tell you that the, I don't. I don't think. Um, yeah, you can try and try and try and try, but uh, biologically, that ain't going to happen uh, with, with I, a man. I, I've done a bit of plumbing in the past, and I've done some electrical engineering, and I've done some sound engineering, and, you know, uh, you've got to have a plug and a socket. You've got to have, you know, <laughs> a male and female coupling. Otherwise, things just don't work. <laughs> yeah, and it's so frustrating how they they skew the headlines and spin, like you just said, you know, two men trying to get pregnant, and man has, you know, first man to have a baby. Well, obviously, as you just pointed out, it's not a man. But in their, you know, twisted fantasy of reality, I guess it, I guess that's that's what they want. But it's I getting mean, we, bad. We, we, we had some news here the other day that in England, uh, lesbians are twice as likely to have unwanted pregnancies as straight uh, women. Well, I mean, how does that work? I mean, it, it just can't happen. Um, that's funny. But uh, what, they, what they're saying is that, well, there's not enough... Um, 
sex education for lesbian girls in school. So we need more sex education for lesbian girls. Well, they sit in the same classes as, as the straight girls do for their sex education. And if they're lesbians, well, they don't really need any contraceptive education, do they? Because you can't get pregnant as two women together. But it, it, again, it's just a nonsense. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, what we, I just read a story about, um, you know, this, this guy who, who's now a female and he's winning all these weightlifting competitions and, <laughs> in, in these women divisions. And there, there, the article talks about, oh, you know, it's amazing how this woman is, is so powerful, so much more powerful than the other women. Well, there's, you get there's it down mixed to it, martial it's not arts, a woman. I think. Mixed martial arts a little while ago, there was a, a, a guy who has, um, well, pretending he's a woman, I guess. I don't, I don't even know what to use terminology-wise, really, now. But he's saying he's a woman is now competing against genuine birth. Mm-hmm. I don't know, even, genetically women, women. I don't even know what they are now. Um, and beating them. Mm-hmm. And the opponent who was seriously beaten up, she had a cracked skull and so on, is so intimidated by the the PC culture we live in, the political correctness, that she daren't say it's unfair that I'm having to fight a man here. Yeah, it's ridiculous. And what's next? I mean, how far are they going to push this? And and how how much more twisted uh, are they going to get? It just seems like they're pushing the the boundaries of of reality. And what what I see it as is uh, first and foremost a spiritual attack against everything that that God had founded, from you know man and woman to marriage to everything else. And Joe, um, absolutely. See, once you start saying that you can't say things are wrong well there is no limit to where you're going to go with this is there I mean um, uh, we started off with same sex marriage but uh, where's that going to end because now that you cannot say that marriage is between a man and a woman it's between two people who love each other where are you going to go next with that I mean we had a I I did a report a while ago on someone who married the Eiffel Tower Um, (laughs) apparently 40% of men would be uh, prepared to have sex with robots I mean, you know, once you have removed the standard, you know, you, you, you take a car with, 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 without any brakes, and you take a car with a chock behind its wheels, and this chock is some standard that's been given, you remove that chock, and there's just no limit to how far that's going to roll down the hill, because no one's prepared to put a chock out there and say things are wrong. Um, we, we, we had just t- today, did we, was it today, or uh, Lewis Hamilton um, was being told... Um, you know, he said that, that that boys don't wear princess dresses, and he's being castigated. As, this is a terrible thing because no one dare say. It's Lewis Hamilton, isn't it? The the Formula One racing driver. Uh, no one dare say that boys shouldn't wear dresses, and he's having to tweet out. You know, I'm really sorry. I deeply apologise for my behaviour. I realise it's really not acceptable for me to say that boys don't wear dresses. Uh, really, because. Because the PC climate we live in won't allow you to say there's a standard here. We should live by it. And you have another layer being in London. Uh, don't you guys have hate speech laws in, over there? <laughs> Fortunately, I'm not in London. Um, I live in a village with eight houses, um, and I believe that's about seven too many. But <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I mean we, we do live in London. There are problems. I, I'm no, I got down here on things to speak about that we need freedom of speech. We have hate speech laws in England. We have we have uh, a right of expression. I'm just trying to find some details on it here. Uh, UK citizens have a, have a right to freedom of expression, but it's undermined by the fact that we must be uh, careful not to 
uh, cause harassment, alarm, distress, um, uh, and distress. You see, anybody can say, "Well, I was distressed by that." Sure. You know, you, you, you even if you were to go to something like, you know, uh, you shouldn't use aluminium saucepans because they might cause Alzheimer's. Well, that might distress people, so you can't say that. Sugar might make you fat. Well, that's distressing me. I love sugar. You can't say that. Um, what can you and can't you once you put it on a subjective level like that it causes distress now we are finding uh, street preachers particularly being arrested quite a lot over here in England none of them have ever been found guilty but they're being arrested they're being held in prison for um, uh, sometimes numbers of hours sometimes overnight they're having to appear in court they're having to um, spend thousands of pounds uh, for legal representation. So I mean, you, you speak of it as, as lawfare yeah. over there. Absolutely, it's oppression. Who, who's you know really got time or, or, or prepared to go and sp- uh, preach on the streets with the fact that they might end up in prison at the end of it? Yeah, it's absolutely incredible, and I, I think that that's that's a huge part of it too. It's not the fact that at the end of the day you're found not guilty from something or for, from charges. It's the fact that between point A and that point, a lot of real estate and a lot of money. You know, and, <laughs> yeah, you're facing some some pretty bad stuff yourself, I gather. Yeah. No, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it's and I'm gonna I'll tell you right now. Okay, it's it's. Uh, Intent to bankrupt. You can say, "Well, I, I'm offended," uh, or I, "I I suffered emotional distress." Huh? You know, for what? But I digress. You know, yeah. But, but you know, Richard Dawkins can say there's no God and highly offend me, but there's there's no. Uh, well, that's you've got to accept that because you're a Christian. <laughs> yeah, well, liberals are allowed to be offensive. Liberals are allowed to be, you know, atheists are allowed to hate. Religious people, but religious people aren't aren't allowed to say, you know, marriage is something that God made. It's not something you can redefine. We have the redefinition of marriage. No, you can't do that because you don't own marriage. You can come up with something else if you want. You can give another relationship. You can invent. I don't. I don't even know what word you'd use for it, but it's not marriage. Boy, a whole new lexicon, uh, indeed. But it's circling back to what you said initially. You know, this whole redefinition of of uh, gender or of uh, uh, sex, you know, male or female. It's just it's ridiculous how how this is playing out. I mean, I I, I, I got hit. children in one school here. I'm just trying to see if I got it up on my my page here. I think I might have printed out. Um, children in one school, uh, one. School district here are being given the choice of 23 different genders when they arrive arrive at school. Here we are. We've got um, this is slightly less. It's only about 14 genders here. Four-year-olds are asked to choose gender on primary school application form. These are four-year-olds, oh. and they're being asked to choose. You know what sex do you want to be? It's just it's child abuse. Yes, it is. There was a great article today in the American Thinker about how the transgender agenda is hurting children it's being pushed on children and then hurting them psychologically and it goes through the statistics of of the uh, operations and then the suicides and the different problems that stem from that but it really focuses on how you know this is being force fed onto children and then over here in the US we see you know children are their parents are allowing children to go through these you know gender changes and it's just completely immoral to, to do this to a child. They don't even know what they want. 
and, and then the parents are, are pushing them on this, but it's getting so out of hand with this political correctness movement all across the board, you know, from, from free speech to the, you know, sexual perversion that is being jammed down the throats. I mean, over here, we've had people, uh, you know, CNN's Chris Cuomo put out a tweet earlier this year that said, you're intolerant if you don't let your, you know, 12-year-old girl in the bathroom with a transgendered adult male. It's this yeah, mentality. I mean, there, there was there was a, 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 a pro a, a trans support. I don't know even what, what they call them, but a pro trans person the other day, uh, I, I believe, tweeting out that men should not be basically men should not be allowed to choose genetic women over hmm. whatever the other is biological women over over choice women or something. Um, I, I guess on things like dating sites and so on. I mean, one of the things <laughs> we're going to have to prepare our children for is the fact that at some point. Uh, especially with churches being a little bit more liberal than perhaps they ought to be, you can have a man come into a church, worship there for a couple of years. Your 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 daughter gets interested in him, you know, uh, walks out for a while and 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 wants to get into marriage. Maybe marry. I mean, if you don't have sex before marriage, you could find out the plumbing's not there after you're married. <laughs> it's crazy, and, and it's not. I mean, we're we're only in the tip of the iceberg where these people are going, and it is from our point of view insanity and uh, and obviously from yours it's the same but you know these these leaders and the heads of the media that this is the agenda they want this is the world they want so they're gonna you know commit suicide to make sure that it happens anthony i want to get your or andrew i'm sorry i want to get your i want to talk about brexit for a little bit because we haven't been hearing a lot about this over here and from I guess just a, a brief summary. <laughs> I like that laugh. The people we, voted. We hear a lot about it, but there's, not, <laughs> there's more smoke than there is clarity. You know. Yeah. It, do you know? I think we might be ending up with Brexit eventually. There are some some really really stupid things going on. England has gone over. Um, amazingly, we won the vote, and Brexit is happening. So it appears. But we then sent our. Uh, having having said, look, this is Britain. We're an independent, sovereign nation. Um, we we have you know the Queen and our government is on. We then sent little people scurrying over to, to to Brussels, saying, please, 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 can we do some trade with you? What we should have done, we should have come back to Westminster. We should have set up a trestle table and put a notice above it, said Britain open for trade. Sign up here. Because we're a sovereign nation, and if people want to trade with us, and they do, they want to sell us their cheese, they want to sell us their wine, and do excuses, squeak in my voice. <laughs> my daughter gave me a cold uh, a couple of days ago. Don't we shed we share communion at uh, Christmas to remind ourselves that um, uh, Jesus came to die for our sins, not just to give us an example of a cute little baby in a manger. And, and, and I'm absolutely sure that sharing the the communion cup that we pass around is what ended up with me having this cold. But it, it does look like we're going to end up with Brexit. Now they're, they're, they're talking about us having to pay, um, I don't know, £45 billion pounds or something. Well, cheap at the price, I think. What we need, almost at any price, is to regain our freedom so we can make our own laws again. Because uh, I don't know what you know about the European Union. I've got some details here somewhere, although it doesn't, doesn't mean much to me. But laws aren't made the way they are in, in England. In England, we, we vote in a government, the government propose laws, and the opposition can do a few, and they get voted on and so on, and if we don't like it, we can vote in another government. Well, the people that we vote into Europe can't make the laws. They can only approve or delay them. They can't even stop the laws. They can only delay them, and it goes around a little bit, and then they have to approve them in the end. So laws are made by a non-elected body that we can't vote out of power, 
that rule over our country. We've, we're submitted underneath the European Court of Human Rights. So if we wanted, and no, <laughs> bad chance, but if we wanted to say, uh, let's get rid of abortion in England, I think that, that we would real struggle because people would go to the European Court of Human Rights and say, it's a human right to be able to kill our children. They, the government can't stop us doing that. If we wanted to stop Sunday trading, if we wanted to stop, you know, if we want to bring our nation to be a more righteous nation, we can't do that while we're underneath the, the, the thumb, as it were, of the um, globalist European Union. Yeah, and you know, the, the European Union, um, it, it's, a, it's a really ugly political system where it got all these nations to, to sign up under its banner and then basically took control of of the finances and then uh, of the law. And, and one of the interesting things I see uh, with with countries like Poland and others is the, the immigration quotas that are the European Union is issuing against all these different countries. And then you have pushback. Uh, Poland is one. I know there, I think Hungary is another one where they say, you know, we're not going to take in a million refugees this year just because you tell us to. And then we see action. Poland. Um, yes. Even, even with military force, if necessary, to and, you know, and, accept and you their know, migrants. Europe wanted to take control of France and Britain's uh, nuclear missiles. They wanted to put them under the the control of Europe. But we were sold a pup when I don't really have that phrase there. But we were sold a pup when we when we entered the European Union. We we joined the EEC, the European Economic Community, which sounded okay to some extent. It was the idea was we want to trade with France. France wants to trade with us. Germany wants to trade with Poland and Poland wants to, you know, and, and so let's just drop the borders and we'll, we'll sell goods to each other without, you know, all the difficulties that go along with international trade. Like we have NAFTA um, here. Like you have NAFTA. But that's, that's not what we ended up with. We ended up with the EC, the European Community, where they now, you know, <laughs> we're almost United States of Europe. Mm -hmm. uh, praise God we have Article 50 and we can get out of it. Um, but they, you know, they, it wasn't what we were sold. It's what it's what was planned behind it, and it's what our um, Edward Heath and and you know our prime ministers knew what was going on. But they sold it to us as well. This is just some free trade, and that's not what was behind it. Behind it is is the United States of Europe, really. Yeah, and isn't that always the case? Uh, you know, we see the same things here when when NAFTA was rolled out, and when it was. Uh, a free trade agreement, but many people talked about, you know, this, this North American Union and how they wanted to merge basically the three countries into one, you know, territory of, of landmass, one political and economic oversight to it and, and kind of, you know, merge the three. Well, thankfully, you know, you had people calling that out and saying that this is exactly what this is. But in Europe, um, you know, it, it is now, you know, you have the European Union and Brexit. But what, what was going on with Brexit? Were, were the, Last week or the week before, were they not trying to nullify the Brexit vote still? <laughs> they, they've been trying that. People like Tony Blair, who, who really is, he's a big, big globalist, um, former prime minister of Britain, and he's been trying, and, and several others have, John Major, have been trying to, uh, wangle all sorts of scare stories, and, and could we not try, you know, uh, uh, well, well, let's have another, Brexit vote at the end of the negotiations when we know what's happening, let's have another vote on it, you know, and, and, and just trying to do anything they can but you see, Trump got in, Brexit got passed we're in that sort of p position in the in the big cycles uh, of things where there is civil unrest and, and people uh, object to um, the, the norm as it were, we have 
Greece really struggling. We have um, uh, Spain wanting to to go for the sort of Catalonian Spain Brexit, as it were, or or, or, or whatever it is. With, with, um, if, if Spain drops out, other people are beginning to talk about this, and it it looks to me, you know, communism doesn't work. Big top-down government over many many nations just doesn't work, and uh, we're we're seeing that with. Uh, uh, the way uh, the economies of Spain and Greece and some other countries are really struggling. Germany is growing well, but because the things are l- lent in Germany's favour, um, and, and so you know it, it looks as if you know if we get out. Uh, and one of the reasons I think they're trying to make Brexit so hard for us is because they know that there's a queue behind us of other countries who are wanting Brexit or. Uh, Brexit or whatever else and so they want to try and make an example of Britain and say look you can try leaving the European Union if you want but you're going to suffer but uh, ultimately Mm. Germany wants to sell us German cars the French want to sell us wine and cheese and we want to buy them so let's trade let's come to a a deal on that Um, but there are yes there are real problems with uh, the immigration that we have coming in Yes. um, because it's not about trade it's about freedom of movement as well and you know, uh, Poland recently, I believe their government have been putting on a campaign basically saying, we need more children. And you know why? The hotel that I work at, the staff, more than half the staff, unless you take the upper management into account, but more than half the staff there are Polish. They say, oh, well, they're not taking any of our jobs. Well, uh, I lost a job a little while ago, and uh, through no fault of my own, I needed to find another job. And I went round job after job after job, a job to find them, because... Well, at our hotel, when a, a new vacancy uh, arises, a Polish person appears. I don't know where from, I don't know how it works, but a, a Polish person appears who's prepared to work harder and longer and, and not complain about the things that are done wrong in the hotel. Um, i I, I got to tell you, sir, you've got our... our, our um our producer and program director and our tech just rolling on the, on the floor laughing, uh, j- just at the manner, your manner of delivery, which is exquisite. And, and, and I, I commend you for it. Of course, folks, our, our guest is Andrew Dropper, the Red Pill Report. Uh, folks visit the Red Pill Report or the Red Pill dot report and also on Facebook. You gotta go on Facebook too, um, for, uh, the Red Pill Report on Facebook. Um, I, I just uh, your delivery is just fabulous, and, and your knowledge <laughs> is. I, I, I love this guy. Uh, I mean, I really. I'll tell you what. My, my knowledge is what, not what it should be because you know <laughs> I'm, I'm in full time employment as well as doing this, and I have a family too. I won't tell you how many children I've got, but I need seven brides for seven brothers. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and there's a few daughters in there too. Uh, and we homeschool them, so they've never done a day at school either. So there's all uh, other matters. Uh, man, we commend you. Go ahead, Joe. Andrew, I want to ask you. You just made a point about uh, the countries, uh, the 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 people of Europe, their sediment versus the European Union and this real populism sweep that's happening. We saw uh, what was it? The the vote in Spain that voted for the Catalonia independence that yes. uh, never happened. And I've seen multiple reports of. Uh, concerns that there are populist movements in many countries in Europe ready to take action uh, to try to to take back some of their rights and, and gain more freedoms. And do you see this as being a real possibility that we will see multiple, you know, populist type movements in these countries, maybe around election times or even just spontaneously popping up? 
Uh, absolutely, it's growing more and more. Uh, but let me let me ask you, Joe. You use the term populist. Mm-hmm. What does populist mean? Well, I guess it's not. Uh, I don't know what the the definition per se is, but I would say it is a, a movement of like-minded people uh, where an idea is popular that latches on, whether it's freedom or absolutely independence. You know, we used to call that democracy, didn't we? Yeah. When most people like something, like a government, um, like uh, a president, like you know whatever, and they and they vote for it. That used to be called democracy, and we used to say, you know, the, the most popular person <laughs> wins, and that's right. Mm-hmm. Now that's called populism. Can't win the votes. People Very don't difficult. like what the left are, uh, are promoting enough for them to win, and so they have to put that down and say, well, that's populist. Um, <laughs> how can something being popular now become negative? That's a you're man. You're right on target with that. Wow. That, that's okay. that's one of the things we we try and do on the Red Pill Report is look at things in the news and that you know they say you know Trump well he's the uh, Trump's the populist president and, and and so we we shouldn't have him he shouldn't win really well hang on that's exactly what a a, a vote in democracy is about now I'm not really keen on democracy because if you're not careful you have you know three wolves and a sheep voting for what's for breakfast. Um, and it, you know it's not in, entirely what we should be right. We don't have really democracy. We have a parliamentary democracy here in England. You don't have no, democracy. We, it, you have we have we, a, we've got a representative uh, republic here, a constitutional absolutely. republic. Yes, uh, and was, you need that because what right. we need to have is not the mass beating up the little guy. We need to have people of moral standing who get elected into parliament, and then uh, the parliament should do a good job of uh, uh, governing. Under moral, you know, uh, um, restraints. Um, so democracy is not all not, not all it's signed up to be. But liberals, generally speaking, cry out, "We want democracy! We want democracy!" Until someone who's right wing wins, and then of course they're populist, and that's wrong. Yeah, that's that's a very good point, and it's, it's very true. It's anything to to try to delegitimize their opponent or enemy. Uh, is exactly what they do. Speaking of, you know, what, what the press does and, and the media and these, these leaders like Merkel and others, this mindset that they have, this ideology, Trump, I imagine, is portrayed just as bad in the press over there as he is here. Is that fair to say? <laughs> Possibly worse, because you have people like yourself and True News and others who are, um, uh, quite large now compared with the, what we might call the mainstream media. And who are able to to point out the uh, uh, FBI CIA plot behind sort of denouncing and, and getting rid of Trump um, and the way it, uh, the full, full details of it, of it escaped me. I listened to it while I'm doing the mopping and don't take enough notes. Um, but you have you know a plot there um, where you have the you know the, the secret dossier against uh, the, the Trump Russia dossier that was paid for by. Um, the Clinton group, uh, whether it was Clinton herself, but pro-Clinton people against Trump, and then they use that to start spying on Trump, and then you know, what they spy on Trump, they used to try and ju- delegitimize Trump, even though, from what I gather, what they, uh, who's the only person so far that's been um, uh, sort of taken to court o- over the, the, the Trump-Russia situation? 
Paul Manafort, but it had nothing to do with Trump Russia. It had to yeah, do with I, financial I, I, dealings aside from that. Absolutely. So, and but that's not what we hear. What we hear is that a member of the of the Trump, you know, side campaign um, is is being prosecuted, and so they try and use this to to put Trump down. We had we had the Bishop of Liverpool. I saw um, that. I got that report right here, which is funny <laughs> because if you read what he says. Uh, and this is something I talked about on The Daily Show. Evangelical Christians uncritical in support for Trump, UK Bishop says. He goes on to say, self-styled evangelicals are, uh, you know, bringing the word ev- evangelical into a bad light in their support for Trump because they say these Christians who believe in Trump are contradicting God's word in the teaching of the protecting of the poor and the weak. In the same article, it goes on to say what this guy gets behind, which is the Ozane Foundation, who works with religious organizations around the world to promote the LGBT gender and sexuality issues, says himself, we need to change the church. And in there, yes. with the same side of his mouth saying, you know, anybody who supports Trump is not really a Christian and you're giving evangelicals a bad name because, uh, you know, as we receive the gospel, what Trump represents is not what Jesus or the gospel represents. At the same time, uh, putting those people down, but on the other side of his mouth, going out and saying that we need to change the church, we need to change the gospel for the LGBT people. It's pretty amazing. E- e- evangelical in England, by the way, no longer really means um, solid Bible believing. It's sort of um, something of a, of a... F- Sorry? Like a church personnel? Is that... Is it- yeah, I mean, it, it, it used to mean if you went to an evangelical church in England, that, that meant they were, were Bible churches. What the Bible said, the, they, you know, that's what they, they preached, that's what they believed in, it's what they used as their sort of, uh, rule book for church life and for, um, so, but it's not so much nowadays. You couldn't trust that a church that called itself evangelical now believed the Bible and lived by the Bible. Um, but yes, the, the bishop apparently somewhere in, in, in what he was talking about was saying that Trump wants to build walls. And that this is terrible, you shouldn't build walls. Well, I do hope that the bishop isn't planning on going to the New Jerusalem, because I seem to remember that God's put some walls around the New Jerusalem. Um, they went and built up the walls around uh, the old Jerusalem. You know, God's in favor of walls. Um, I think in the Garden of Eden, didn't God put a, a, a flaming... Um, an angel with a flaming sword mm-hmm. at the gate to the garden. I think that the garden must have had a fence or a wall or a hedge or something around it. You know, God demarcates things as being this is good, this is bad. There's a boundary between them. Don't cross it. And that, um, and that's taking this guy's statement at face value. If we break down what he's actually saying, he's saying because of of how Trump is is perceived in the media as you know this tyrant and this hater of the poor, which I, I don't know where that comes from. Anyway, but. He's saying because of of how the Trump is portrayed or how he sees Donald Trump, anybody who supports him obviously can't be a Christian because they don't believe the same way he does. But it is it's a joke what they have done to the church, and this is definitely an area we can get into over here in the U.S. I mean, I know you've seen it too. They continue to promote these politically correct social justice causes in the church <laughs> to the point where it's completely opposite of what Scripture says as far as, uh, you know, the sexuality and the genders and whatnot. But they, that's okay. But if somebody else uh, they disagree with ideologically says they're a Christian, then they must be wrong because they don't have that same love and tolerance as, as these people. But it's, it's, well, uh, it's amazing. My, my dad, who, who's, uh, 
in his sort of mid mid to late eighties, was preaching the other day at a, at a little country church, and the lady said, uh, the lady, I, I, I took a note of what what she said. The lady said to him, "It's so refreshing to hear someone preach from the Bible." Hmm. What else do you preach from? Um, yeah. England has a lot of social gospel, a lot of well, not a lot of gospel at all, really. Right, and then as you said earlier, you know, you have street preachers who are probably uh, much more accurate than any people in the pew, uh, for the most part, in, over there or here, are actually being arrested for doing so. And you have the same issues here. I saw in Alabama uh, a street preacher was arrested last week as well. But why is the church continuing to conform to the world instead of sticking to its its foundation all across the world? Well... Let, let me just contradict you a tiny bit there. I think people in the pew are more biblical than people in the pulpit now. Not not entirely, of course. When when you generalise, you know, generally is wrong somewhere. But for many many churches, the congregation are more biblical and more uh, godly, more um, uh, traditional in their understanding of scripture than the people who are preaching in the pulpit. Um, as an example. Uh, a little while ago we had the World Baptist something or another uh, in Birmingham, England here now we got a, not Birmingham, Alabama now they do speak nicely down there um, but Birmingham, England and they don't speak so nicely there they've got a funny old accent um, and I went round all the Baptist um, colleges that train up ministers in England I went round to every one of their displays and I said what do you teach on Genesis and every one of them said they teach evolution and that the first 11 chapters are, well, parable or myth or, or have some, you know, spiritual meaning, but they're not true. And so there's no um, time when there wasn't death. There's no death becoming as the result of the sin of man. Uh, Jesus, therefore, didn't need to come and die to take away this death that is the punishment for our sin. You know, the gospel's gone. What have you got left once you've removed Genesis 1 to 11? Uh, and of course, Genesis 11 helps us know why we shouldn't have the European Union, we should have nations, not uh, <laughs> multinational uh, conglomerate bodies. God set us in nations because that is, is a stay against things going wrong. You know, when, when Hitler and Germany um, went askew, there were nations around who could stand against that. But if, if we would have the whole of Europe go awry, well, who are the nations around who are going to deal with that? And God set us in nations, but that, that, that's getting uh, back off the subject. So, um, uh, a, a little while ago, there, there was a, a man preaching, and I went to a local Church of England church. I don't get on so well with Church of England. They, they're liturgical, and they have all the, you know they work from a book and so on. And I, I get on much much more with a sort of a free church situation where people pray extemporary prayers. And, you know, the preacher preaches from a verse that the Lord's laid on his heart. Um, but it was very clear that the congregation and the things that they... Because it was a, sort of an open sharing service. The congregation and the things that they were sharing, the things they were saying, the hymns they were choosing, were far more uh, traditional and far more biblical in their views than the man in the pulpit. Well, that's... Um, you know, it's very interesting. And I guess we need to see more people who attend churches that they don't agree with and we need we need people to step out and and to become leaders especially those who will stick to the bible teachings the way that they are originally not trying to change them to to make other people feel better 
but it does seem, you know, we do see this trend a little bit with uh, what you said, you know, people starting their own shows, people having their podcasts, and uh, really stepping out of their comfort zone to get these things done. But we need to continue that trend. Do you see, uh, Andrew, do you see in 2018 the press continuing, both in the U.S. and, and over there, continuing to hammer Trump? How do you see this Trump presidency uh, con- going forward from here? Um, it's strange, you know. We have the how the, the the speaker of the House of Commons. Uh, I, I wrote about this a long time ago. Now I forget the full details, but he's saying, "Well, if Trump comes over here, I'm not going to invite him to my house because he normally uh, has people uh, part of the sort of the customs here that he um, has people round for uh, a meal or for drinks or something. But all manner of people who we would consider to be morally unfit social leaders." He's had round to his house, but he says, no, I won't. if Trump comes, I'm not having him. Um, the press uh, very much are against uh, Trump at the moment. The comedians, they love to, to mock Trump. It's going to be really hard to see things change. At the moment, see, if you own the media, and, and on the whole, the media is not a free, open press anymore, and you use that to throw mud at people, you can then start calling them muddy, can't you? Uh, <laughs> and so we have a situation where you know people can say, Trump's a hater. We don't want a hater here, do we? And you know, you you you've got uh, there's a as a proper term for it when you you know uh, if if you if you were to say when it rains the streets get wet, the streets are wet, therefore it's raining. Well, that's not true. Maybe there was a street sweeper came along and threw a bucket of water after them. If you called someone hateful uh, and then said we don't want any haters here, do we? Well, you you know you haven't yet proved that he's a hater. You certainly haven't proved that he's worse than, <laughs> than um, well, uh, uh, the nickname round here for, for someone is Zipper Clinton, uh, back in the old days. Um, <laughs> I get in trouble with my wife over. Zipper Clinton, you know, he, his moral standards were not exactly entirely high. And yet, you know, no one has any problems with, with, with him as a, uh, the, the president, well, former president. No, we don't even know who... Barack Obama was. I mean, you know, we, we don't Very hear this true. much of we hear birthers. Birthers. <laughs> oh, you're not a birther, are you? Well, just, just, you know, show me his birth certificate. Oh, you show me his birth certificate. Hang on a minute. That's obviously a fraud. I mean, I, I'm not a, a document expert, but the document that was put up on that uh, White House website was obviously a fraudulent document. That's right. You know, very clearly. And yet the media would just call you, well, you're a birther, aren't you, if you don't believe he's, you know, well, I don't know who he is. I'm not a racist. Oh, by the way, um, if people can say, uh, yeah, I've got a beard and I've got dangly tackle, but I'm a woman. Um, and if people can say, and we, we, and we have this now, people say, well, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm 65 years old, but I'm actually an eight-year-old girl. Um, if people can say that, I'm going to say, I've decided I'm not a racist. And you can't call me one because that would be, uh, you know, being hateful towards me. No, I'm not a racist. But um, uh, saying that Trump's birth certificate is a, is a forgery is not racist. Um, to start with, Trump's half white, so I'd be half hating myself. Um, but <laughs> facts are facts. If, the, if, if, it's, if it's a fake document, that doesn't make you a racist. Exactly. And thank you. And I'm still stuck on, what was that dangling tackle? Uh, I just. <laughs> <laughs> well, how do you describe it politely, you know? <laughs> I love it. No, I. <laughs> I love it. I, 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 
You're absolutely 100% correct. Our guest is Andrew, Andrew Drapper, the Red Pill Report, the Red Pill Dot Report. Visit the website. Uh, it, I mean, it is a fantastic website. And, and he's quickly turning into one of my favorite people. Uh, I, I got... Very fun interview. Oh, man. You know, I, I had John on for, I, I've had John on a couple of times on the Red Pill Report, and he, you know, I've never met the man, I've, I've never spoke to him and, until the, the, the day of the interview. It's like having an old friend on, because we are brothers, aren't we, in Christ? Yes. And when you are, uh, people often talk about, well, there should be unity, there should be unity, we've got to have unity. Well, unity comes when you tune things to the to the right pitch as it were if I've got several several pianos um, and they're going to be playing together uh, well I could find the worst out of tune one and tune the others to that but then when the violin comes in they're out of tune again and then when the trumpeter comes in and you know uh, what you need to do is get the tuning fork and then tune the pianos to the tuning fork well this this is my tuning fork here um, when when we're in tune with this then w- there will be unity. John's my brother because he believes the same things I do. Uh, likewise with yourselves. When you, when you're in tune with the Lord, you're in tune with your other brothers and sisters. Absolutely, and it, it's something <laughs> that. Are you lot dead over there with laughter? <laughs> we, we we looked at each other like, are you yeah. going to respond or no? That that's exactly right. I I mean you are so right. And and, and by the way, that on so many levels, that tuning fork analogy is is right on the money. My goodness. Okay. And we all need to to take that time to, you know, uh, make sure that we're praying each day and, uh, you know, reading our scriptures and and staying. Um, Staying in that in that spiritual walk with the Lord, because if we're not doing that, then we're we're backsliding, and you know that has consequences as well. And we we need to make sure that you know we put first in and foremost our our faith walk before anything else. And sometimes that's I, hard I, to do. I, I, you know, I I find my life fairly busy, so I I do my Bible reading on 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 my phone here. I I got a, I got a phone here, and I got a, a little bit that goes in the ear, and while I'm doing my mopping or or, or you know washing up at home. I listen to the Bible on that because I find it hard to, to find time to sit down. My wife's good. She's, she's, she's an early person. So she gets up early in the morning and goes into the living room and has her quiet time and so on. Well, I, 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 I'm not a morning person. So I, I find that difficult. And then there's children all around from then onwards. But I try and find time. There's, there's a little phrase that we had years ago here, which was seven days without prayer makes one week. Now, I always had trouble with my spelling, so I didn't get it for a long time, but W-E-A-K, um, <laughs> uh, not W-E-E-K. Right. So seven days without prayer or without Bible reading, you know, you're going to become spiritually weak, and we need to be, you know, regularly in that. Amen. Amen with that. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Andrew Rapper, The Red Pill Report. The Red Rapper. Pill dot, Rapper. Drapper. Drapper. Andrew Rapper. <laughs> I, I, a, did, did I, I did that. Mispronounce that? Yeah, you All just right. dropped the D. Yeah, Andrew Dropper. Okay, uh, the Red Pill dot report is his website, and tune into his uh, broadcast as well. Uh, Andrew, we've got right about six minutes left. Man, the floor is yours. So we're, don't mop it. Uh, just, just. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay. So, so we started off with if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? 
Well, you know, when the walls were broken down, they went out with sword and trowel and built them back up again. And I think one of the things that, that we in Britain most need to be praying about is we need Brexit because we need to get out from underneath this globalist power. I mean, we're going to be in a state then anyway because the government is, is not perfect by a long way. And, you know, you, you talk about um, dark state and that sort of thing. I mean, we go back so far with our dark state over here that uh, <laughs> our, our royal family history and so on of of, of well, it's, it's just dark and black. But we, but we can't even begin to deal with that until we get ourselves sorted out there. The church is in a mess. We don't preach the gospel. Um, half the churches in England have no one in them under 65 years old. So if you've got a congregation of, you know, five people who are uh, 65 or over, it only takes one, epi- you know, one bout of flu and half the churches in England will be closed. Um, I exaggerate slightly there. We then have the problem of Bible translations. You know, way, way back uh, at the beginning of your of your book here, Satan said, "Yea, hath God said," and we have a real problem that God, uh, Satan's been trying to challenge God's word from from that point onwards. And we have, you know, our modern Bible translations. They've they've taken out the word Lucifer. Um, uh, there's lots of stuff that's that's sort of missing within it, like. Um, when the Ethiopian eunuch says, "What hindereth me to be baptized?" Well, I, I, I've got that up here. If I if I look for it, where are we? Acts eight uh, thirty-seven. Uh, the NIV, in reply, has open brackets a close brackets. See the footnote yeah. because there's, the verse is completely missing, which talks about if you believe with all your heart, you may be baptized. See, so we've taken away the idea of believing being important of faith in God being important for the gospel. Hey, we'll baptize any of you, because it doesn't matter. No, we need to stick with the scripture. And I, I, I was talking with John about these some about over a year ago. I said, modern translations, they're a castration. They're not a translation. They've taken the power out of the of the Bible. Um, uh, I'm just trying to think of another one. And, and ju- just, to, just to add this, the difference between the King James Version and the New King James Version uh, I think oh. it's just amazing. They've taken uh, the word "the Lord" out. Uh, I think sixty sometimes mm-hmm. the uh, references to heaven, to hell, to God. I mean, it's just amazing. Do, do people even know that? I mean, the, the, the New King James they bring out version after version after version with no indication that they've changed things, but they have. They've taken things like from from I can't remember which verse it is now, but talking about Jesus being nail pierced. They've moved it now to his sides being pierced, or or to his back being pierced, or something, and and so they change things. But the the NIV, well, we had the NIV, the old one, and then they had the TNIV, which gender neutralized the gospel, yeah. and the church wouldn't have it. So what they did, they they took it sort of halfway between and reprinted it as the NIV 2011, and. No one, you know, no one goes and checks. Well, uh, which which NIV have I got? Have I got the the old one? Or, and and so half um, half the sort of examples in the Bible now of the priests they're no longer uh, a male priesthood. It's a gender neutral priesthood in the and and the like. Even the Holy Spirit at one point is gender neutralized in the the modern NIV. But how about this verse? I can do all things through who is it through Christ. Christ who strengthens me. Now, strengthened is a funny old word, but I know what it means. But in the NIV, I believe it is, it says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. 
well, strength may be an easier word to use, but who is it that gives me strength? Is that my personal trainer? Is it my pastor? Is it, you know, uh, the guru down the road? See, they've taken out the word Christ, and the word Christ is definitely there in the Greek, but they've taken it out and put him who gives me strength. Uh, and we've just, you know, which one do you want to preach from? I know which one I want to preach from. Um, it's the one that tells me that Christ is the one who gives me strength. Amen. Andrew, we only so got about we... a minute left. Sorry for cutting you off there. Just want to no, make sure fine. people uh, get get your information. The website is report, and your podcasts are located uh, directly from the website? Yes, they're, they're directly from the website there under the podcast link, which you have there in blue. Um, uh, I, I, I try and put uh, written articles up there too, but sometimes work, uh, full-time work is just too busy <laughs> to be able to do this. Uh, a bit more full time here but yeah what, what I would recommend though is that people sign up on, on their phone or on their podcatcher or wherever they normally listen to podcasts to the Red Pill Report make sure it's the right one because I think there's one or two others out there that are similarly named uh, if you don't hear me talking on it it's the wrong one and then every time it's, it's put out it's normally put out Sunday nights um, early Monday morning so it's there for, for, for your Monday morning you know commute or whatever to uh, to listen to how do you manage to put out five hours of podcasts a day? We're, we're insane. I, I mean, clinically, <laughs> okay, we, we have therapists on retainer. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's just amazing. How can people best uh, help you? you? You have a, a Patreon, PayPal account? Uh, we, we don't have Patreon. My dad complained that Patreon took too much money from me. But if you go to the website, there's there are PayPal links there, and uh, then all the money uh, doesn't uh, PayPal don't take any of that from me? I don't believe, and it comes straight through, and okay. that would be fantastic if people want to. Very uh, good. But they can sign up as well for uh, the podcasts there as well if they want them by email instead of by. In fact, every article that I post will be out once a day in their uh, email feeds if they if they want to, you know, hear what's going on. Andrew Dropper, uh, the Red Pill Dot Report. Hopefully, hopefully you'll come back. Uh, we really appreciate <laughs> you. Anytime. All right, my friend. It's Thank you a, so it's much. It's been a pleasure. God bless you. God bless. Folks, stir where we at network break. And welcome back to this edition of the Hagman Report. Boy, have we got a, a, a guest for you. Uh, Mark Olshaker. He's an Emmy Award winning filmmaker. A New York Times bestseller. Nonfiction author. How many people out there have seen the series Mindhunter inside the FBI's elite serial crime unit? How many people? Show of hands. No, don't do that. Um, I got to tell you, uh, he's he's a co-author of my, the book Mindhunter with John Douglas. Now, John Douglas. Well, I consider John Douglas kind of like the father of criminal profiling. You've you've seen perhaps shows like um, Criminal Minds, where you've got FBI profiling units. Uh, John, that's who John Douglas is. That's who uh, essentially Mark Olshaker is as well. Of course, being an Emmy award-winning filmmaker, and I think I think Mr. Olshaker is the first Emmy award-winning filmmaker we've had on the program in our history, which is great. Now his writing and his research and consulting 
has involved working closely with leading experts in the field of law enforcement, uh, criminal justice, you name it, public health, disease prevention, intelligence, uh, biodefense, pandemic planning, and so on. Uh, he's seven nonfiction books he has written with John Douglas, the former well, uh, profiling pioneer, as I said, beginning with Mine Hunter, or uh, uh, beginning with Mine Hunter inside the FBI's elite serial crime unit. They've sold millions of copies, millions of copies, and have made Olshaker a sought-after speaker and a consultant on criminal justice and victims' rights issues. And we want to thank uh, Okasa Media for this as well, for helping John arrange the interview. By the way, if you ever have a uh, if you ever have a need for a speaker, there's one call you should make, and that's to Okasa Media. But Mindhunter is a now a critically acclaimed Netflix series. My wife is just uh, she she loves that program as I do. Uh, again, produced and directed by David Fincher, Mark Olshaker's other co-authored books with John Douglas. Man, I, I'll, I'll just read a couple of them here: the cases that haunt us, that revisits with the perspective of modern criminal profiling analysis, which is something I really. I really get into um, include Jack the Ripper cases like that, Lizzie Borden's Lindbergh Baby, and on and on. John Benet Ramsey, and and I first heard John Douglas talk about John Benet Ramsey, just which is Mark Olshaker's uh, co-author. We have Mark Olshaker on with us. It is our distinct pleasure, our honor to welcome Mr. Mark Olshaker to the Hagman Report, sir. Welcome. Thank you very much. Man, I'll tell you what, you're you're a legend in this office. I can tell you that. You and John <laughs> Douglas are both. Um in fact the one of the uh, well uh, the audio book by your co author John Douglas and, and I and I'm I wanna say it was about the murder of John Bonet. Uh I think I listened to that three or four different times in my travels going to uh on different uh investigative cases. Thank so, you very much. You know, I got to tell you, man, you guys are, are really on, on top of things. Um, wow. Uh, you, you know, where can we start here? Because we, there are so many things to talk about, uh, so many applications. You guys, you and John, are the really the pioneers of what we see on television, uh, the, the profiling units, the FBI profiling fair to say? Well, I guess so, yeah. Um, we, we did kind of start all this with, uh, with, with Mindhunter, and I think probably the, the first question to start with is, why do people like true crime so much? And uh, the answer is, I think, because uh, it is about the human condition. It is, uh, it's what we all feel. Uh, it's about love and hate and uh, uh, all the other emotions, jealousy, rage, ambition, uh, profit, greed, whatever. And uh, this, is, uh, this is what we all feel, but most of us have the restraint, the, uh, the, the self-discipline not to actually do those things. So when you see somebody who doesn't, who it's really uh, what they're about is fulfilling their own egos, their own desires, without any regard to anybody else. That's a very scary prospect, but it really is the human condition writ large. Interesting. Okay. Uh, 
And, and, and I'm glad you mentioned that because it, it just seems like there is this uh, connect connectivity or this is interest. I don't want to say obsession, but but a very healthy interest uh, with the true crime. With up, oh, we lost we lost them momentarily. We'll have them back. This is a fascinating yeah it is topic of discussion. Okay, we got them back. Yeah, you, okay. You, you blipped out there I, for a second. No, I'm not. I, I'm I'm not uh, very good at these uh, mechanical things. Ah, that's all right. Things. Yeah. Okay, I'm back. I won't touch anything else. You, you know, uh, our, my, our, our uh, Eric the Tech, he puts a shock collar on me every time I get near that uh, spaceship of his. Uh, I'm yeah, not. Allowed I'm not to, touching anything now. Yeah, I I hear you, man. Uh, wow, but, but you're right in the in, but but and and the the profiling has its place as well, um, in in, in forensic crime fighting in in, in the uh, it's a forensic discipline. Sure, sure right? absolutely. Okay, and you know profiling can get a bad name when it's used improperly when we just talk about racial profiling or or whatever. Uh, but the issue is profiling is about narrowing your suspect, narrowing your possibilities uh, in a logical, intelligent, and somewhat scientific way. And to the extent that you can do that, you're actually helping an investigation. Hmm. You know, one of the very first uh, reports I, I saw, um, now I... Well, let me ask you this. How far back does the official FBI profiling center go? I mean, uh, how, when did when did this begin in the FBI officially? Well, this is a very interesting question uh, because John Douglas, my, my partner, was the first full-time uh, operational profiler, and that began in the late 1970s and really uh, came into its own probably with the Atlanta child murder case in the early 1980s. Right. Uh, unofficially, uh, people in the behavioral science unit had been doing uh, profiling for quite a while. Howard Teton, who was one of the first uh, instructors in um, criminal psychology, was doing it unofficially and studied the work of James, Dr. James Russell, the Greenwich Village psychiatrist who uh, in the 1940s and 50s finally cracked the case of the Mad Bomber of New York. But what's very interesting is that this is one of those cases where uh, fact imitates fiction or life follows art uh, because the first profilers were really uh, the detectives uh, created by uh, Edgar Allan Poe, Wilkie Collins, Arthur Conan Doyle, so the Sherlock Holmes of the of the literary world really preceded the John Douglases of the uh, of the criminal world, criminal justice world. V- very interesting. I, I do want to mention because I wanted to make sure that I was correct in this, um, whether it was official or unofficial, or uh, can be attributed to uh, you know what John Douglas did, but uh, the. Uh, five-year-old or five-year unsolved homicide case of my uncle that happened. The homicide happened in 1982. Brutal forensic killing. And and, uh, the police department had uh, said, you know what we're going to do, and this is to my family, we're going to enlist the FBI's help in developing a profile. And, you know, we looked at one another thinking, What's this about? And then when we got the report back, it's interesting because 
the um, now I have to say this: the the case went unsolved for five years, and myself as an investigator, uh, my partner and I uh, took on the cold case five years almost to the day after it happened, and with eight months we were able to bring it to a conclusion, a successful conclusion, and the individual responsible for that that uh, murder is spending life in prison today. Good, good. But I, I said that because one of the most interesting things is the the perpetrator, uh, the uh, profiling report matched the the perpetrator almost to, I mean, it was almost like a resume. You know, it was that close, and I was just so astounded by the by the accuracy of the. Well, problem. you know, a lot of it seems like voodoo or black magic until you really get into it, and then when you start analyzing what's really uh, going on and where each of these assumptions, if you will, uh, or conclusions comes from, it all starts to make sense. It does. Yeah, yeah. and and I saw that play out in real time. All right. Um, I mean, I can give you an example if you like. Sure, uh, sure. Um, for instance, in when black children started being murdered in Atlanta in the nineteen in the late seventies, early nineteen eighties, uh, the assumption was this was a Ku Klux Klan type uh, uh, operation that this was uh, a hate crime uh, that they were uh, trying to bring back Jim Crow, whatever. So John Douglas and uh, another. Uh, instructor and profiler, Roy Hazelwood, a very brilliant man in his own right, they went down to Atlanta at the invitation of the police and started looking around the crime sites. First thing they said was, this is not a Klan-type operation, because if this were a hate group like this, it would be, it would be, the bodies would be very symbolically placed, like a lynching, uh, they would be, or there would be some kind of credit taken. They wouldn't just do it anonymously. So that's understanding the group uh, mentality uh, of, and, and knowing that this was not part of that. The second thing was when you, when you looked at where these bodies were found and where the abductions took place, uh, these were all at the time very African-American neighborhoods and a white person would have stood out very uh, distinctly and yet there were no witness accounts of any of these kids being abducted or any of the bodies being placed anywhere. So that's what led them to say, all right, this is a, this is most likely an African American offender. And then they just worked through to that until they got to somebody who matched Wayne Williams' personality, uh, a profile. And, uh, the way he was caught was actually through using proactive techniques to try to direct him where, uh, the police wanted him to go so that, uh, the bodies would be found in a place where the police could surveil. And that's exactly what happened. Very, very interesting. This stuff fascinates me. And I don't know if it's from the TV, uh, you know, romanticizing of, of the profiling, uh, type profession, or if it's the more the, the law enforcement angle, uh, you know, looking at things from a completely different perspective. I wanted to ask you about profiling. What, when sure. you sit down and so you're, you're handed a case, what are some of the first steps you take? What are the, how do you determine, you know, based on, uh, the victims based on uh, what what you're looking at. How do you determine what kind of person this is? How, do, how does this all work? Well, it, there's there's a lot of things that go through it. Fortunately um, for me, I am not the one who has to do it. I, I just write about it, though I've studied it and sit, sat in on many cases uh, over the last 20 years. But the first thing you look at is the victimology. 
why was this victim chosen? Was this a high-risk victim? Was this a low-risk victim? Uh, is this somebody who was taking chances? Uh, and that'll tell you a lot about what kind of person did it, whether it was somebody who uh, was familiar with the victim, somebody who the victim did not know, whatever. Then you look at the, t the way the crime was, uh, was handled, what was the weapon, how was the body left, uh, what were the circumstances, the time of day, was anything else taken, uh, did, did this person have any kind of uh, history, uh, and, then you, and then you work from there. Uh, you can tell a lot by the way the body is displayed, how the body is disposed, uh, whether, there are, uh, whether there are any kind of uh, uh, defense wounds on the body. There's, there's so many different ways you can go with this. And uh, the cliche of, well, this is a white male loner in his mid-twenties, I mean, that, that's, you know, pretty, pretty uh, popular, but it doesn't really mean much. And uh, sometimes the circumstances of the crime can uh, get you a, a long way. Sometimes they can't, but you can know enough about the type of criminal to uh, use proactive techniques to try to, uh, to uh, hunt him down and, uh, and flush him out. Uh, one of the best techniques, and it's no, no secret and uh, no surprise, is enlisting the public, because the more information the public is given uh, without compromising the investigation, the more the public can participate and maybe recognize some of the traits in the profile and uh, come to the police. That's happened many times. Interesting. Now, we're talking with Mark Olshaker. He's the man behind Mindhunter, inside the FBI's Elite Serial Crime Unit. In fact, on our program description, check out the Netflix trailer and the real serial killers of Mindhunter. The link is in the description as well. So you write about this very close, obviously, with John Douglas. So you've got like a front row center seat in that's just, true. You know, you really, yeah, it's amazing insight, Joe. I, I know you were no, you know, just, uh, just on the on the profiling. I, I want to ask you this. I know, uh, is, are there examples where the profiling has not worked? Sure. Okay. Sure. Um, there are. Uh, first of all, uh, Joe, the profile is only as good as the information that's uh, mm -hmm. that's provided. So sometimes the profile is uh, is very accurate. Uh, as Doug said, sometimes it's not. Um, uh, it depends on what you've got to work with. Uh, the, one of the most difficult uh, uh, aspects of a profile to nail down is age, because uh, chronological age doesn't mean much. It's really psychological age. Uh, in the case of Arthur Shawcross, who was uh, uh, killing prostitutes up in Rochester, New York, the uh, profiler uh, who was handling the case, Greg McCrary, pegged him at about 30 based on the nature of the crimes and uh, what they looked like and the level of sophistication. Now, when Shawcross was uh, was captured, it turns out he was... What? He'd been in prison for other crimes for 15 years. So if you add that 30 uh, to, 50, to uh, 45 or 47, uh, and you realize he'd been on ice for 15 years, his psychological age was probably closer to 30 than his uh, actual age. That's very interesting. Very and, interesting indeed. Uh, when, when profiling, are there uh, behavioral traits or indicators that are constantly, you're constantly uh, adding to the list or, or 
uh, is it more of, a, of an exact science as far as these certain behaviors indicate this, 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 and this, or are, are things constantly I, changing? I, I wish we could say that it was an exact science. Uh, it's not. It's somewhere in that nether region between art and science, Joe. But, Boy, that's uh, right. Uh, yeah. I, I, I didn't mean to interrupt because I, sure. I just I, I like to say, you know, it, to me, when you do a surveillance, um, for example, the 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 uh, sur- surveillance to me is both a science, but you've got it, there's an art to it as well. As being an investigator, you either got it or you don't. In 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 the majority of cases, in my view, anyway, uh, you, it's not something you can actually learn in a classroom. Um, and, and some people are just not good at it, you know. Well, I think, Doug, I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, as being an investigator yourself, you know, and this is something that I think, you know, you asked me earlier about uh, what's true and what's uh, media or fiction or made up. And you know as an investigator that uh, the idea that uh, the profiler uh, has this rare gift or is it actually a curse that lets him get inside the head of the criminal well you know as well as I do that any good investigator, any good detective any good police officer knows how to get inside the head of a criminal if he didn't he wouldn't be very good at his job Uh, it's more important to be able to relate what's going on in the head of the criminal to the evidence that he leaves at the crime scene and I say he because it's almost always he in the predatory crimes we're talking about. And the other thing that's just as important, I think, is to be able to get inside the head of the victim and understand what the victim is going through and how the victim responds uh, has a lot to do with how the offender responds. Okay. And, you know, do you see a lot of times, I know, uh, dealing with these types of, of criminals and crimes, where you have uh, law enforcement personnel that get negative effects, whether it's PTSD uh, or, you know, th- th- there's a whole bunch of things that, that can come with this. Do the people in the FBI, the, the criminal profilers, do they have a higher uh, tolerance, would you say, for these kind of, of crimes? Or do they are they subjected to the same kind of uh, side effects as, as uh, others might be? Well, that, that's a very good question, Joe, because uh, I think they do have a higher tolerance for uh, seeing these kind of crimes because they see them so frequently. But the stress level and the effect, the psychic effect it has on them uh, can't be denied. Uh, John Douglas in uh, 1984, I believe it was, almost died, came down with uh, viral encephalitis while he was out in Seattle investigating the Green River case. Um, and it was the stress of all the cases he was handling. Uh, he was one of the few operational profilers at that point. He was handling Oh, about 500 open cases at the same time, and uh, knowing the stakes, knowing the consequences, knowing what would happen for each integra- uh, integral of time that the, uh, each killer was not caught uh, has a tremendous effect. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. Exactly. And by the way, I, I, I want to say this. I remember listening to the audio tape from John Douglas, and I, and I know, well, of course, I want to remind people our guest is Mark Olshaker, Emmy Award-winning filmmaker, New York Best Times best-selling nonfiction author. Uh, folks, this this gentleman that we, we have, we're so lucky to have him. But I remember hearing an audio book. You speak, you're talking about, you know, the, the the mental aspect of of both the um, all of the investigators, but I remember uh, hearing on on the uh, audiobook uh, John Douglas saying, uh, I, I think it was a time when he interviewed 
the husband of a missing wife or a dead wife. I'm not, not exactly sure. But he referenced something to the effect of, and I'm paraphrasing here, and this is probably 15, 20 years ago when I heard this, but it stuck with me. Um, he said something uh, to the effect of uh, the, the husband asking the husband, do you know... Uh, do you know what's missing from your wife's underwear drawer? Or could you tell me everything that's in your wife's underwear drawer? And the answer surprised me in a way, it, or at least kind of, it kind of got my attention. Um, if that individual said, oh yeah, I could tell you everything that was in there, or I know exactly what's missing, that's one sick puppy. All right. <laughs> I agree. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, think about that, folks. But, um, <laughs> wow. Uh, no, I, I was so enthused about getting that point out because I remembered that, and it had an effect on me. It, thinking about that whole thing, Joe, you had alluded to this. Um, go ahead. Did you want to say? Well, I, I kind of want to just ask. Um, you know, we, I see a list of, of different cases here, and I remember uh, reading. A, I read a lot about the Seattle Green River Killer. What are some of the the most haunting cases that that you've worked on? Gosh, there's a there's a lot of them. I think one of the most haunting cases, since you use that word, that uh, that John dealt with was the Sherry Faye Smith murder in uh, Columbia, South Carolina. Uh, this was a uh, young girl, very bright, very personable, uh, a cheerleader, I believe, about 15 years old, as I recall. She was abducted just at the end of her driveway, getting her mail. Um, and uh, it turns out she was uh, she was abducted by a very a monster I'll, I'll say named Larry Jean Bell um, who was who lived in the in the area and he essentially told her he was going to kill her and he allowed her to write what she called her last will and testament which was delivered to her parents. Uh, in which she told them, well, it's it's very emotional, <clears throat> but she told them to go on living, that she loved them, all of that kind of thing. And uh, the fact that just thinking about this 15-year-old child writing this, knowing that this monster who has her in his custody is going to kill her, and that she has the presence of mind and the grace, if you will, uh, to, to write this, uh, knowing she was going to die, he then killed uh, another 11-year-old girl after that. And when John came down to get involved with the case uh, at the request of the sheriff's department, he actually took a huge chance and used Dawn as bait, essentially, to bring him out into the open. And uh, without giving too much away, um, it's in the book Mindhunter, uh, a brilliant combination of profiling and detective work and forensic uh, police work uh, caught this monster who was then executed. But uh, Joe, you asked about the, the most haunting case. Because of the particular circumstances of the Sherry Faye Smith case, I would say that's one of the most haunting. Now, we've also written a book called The Cases That Haunt Us, which is about cases from Jack the Ripper all the way up to Jean Benet, Jean Benet Ramsey that are haunting for other reasons, primarily because either there wasn't a, uh, a, a conclusion, a satisfactory conclusion, as in the case of uh, Jack the Ripper, or the, the cases remained very controversial, such as the Lindbergh kidnapping. Um, so 
there's different ways that a case can haunt you, but uh, haunting they do, no doubt. If, if both Joe and I are, are kind of nodding to one another here, if we can press you, and of course our guest, folks, is yeah, I'm going to be pressed. Go on. Uh, okay, <laughs> Mark Allshaker, uh, an Emmy award-winning winning filmmaker, author, New York Times bestseller, nonfiction author, uh, Mindhunter, uh, inside the FBI's serial elite serial crime unit, folks. I highly recommend all of his books, all of uh, Mr. Allshaker's books, but. If we press you on John Bonet, okay, just give us your thoughts. Uh, uh, I, I, you know, I don't want to be presumptuous in the questions I would ask, nor do I want to uh, obviously put you in a position where um, you don't want to comment. But what can you tell us about John Bonet? That here's case. What, here's what we can tell you. Um, we can't tell you. Uh, unfortunately, this happens a lot. We can't tell you who killed him but we can tell you who didn't kill her. And that was either of her parents or her brother. And this was one of those cases where there was a tremendous rush to judgment based on um, people thinking they understood what they didn't understand. Um, And we can take this case from a forensic point of view, from a behavioral point of view, uh, from a scientific point of view, and any way you look at it, it becomes clear that the parents didn't do it. But the police came in with a theory. The theory was wrong, in our opinion, uh, in our studied opinion. And uh, the case continued from there uh, along a certain line. And uh, uh, Doug, you know, again, as a private investigator, you know as well as I do that if you have a confirmation bias going in, you can get the... Uh, the results you seek, you Absolutely. can get. You can get the answers you want. Uh, the the challenge is to remain open-minded and be open to all the evidence, and not lead the evidence, not lead the case, but let the case lead you. That's right. All the time. So, uh, that can, happens a lot. Can, yeah. If you want, we can we can go over that case. Uh, the same thing with uh, the Amanda Knox case in Italy. The police decided early on that she'd done it, and uh, and yet. The evidence was absolutely compelling, not only that she didn't do it and her boyfriend, Raphael, did not do it, but who did do it. But let's go back to uh, John Benet Ramsey. Um, <clears throat> we can start from any position you want, but let's, uh, let's say we start from the forensic evidence, and then we'll go from there to the behavioral evidence. Now, the medical examiner's report said that this little girl died from one of two possible causes. Either one was sufficient to cause death. She uh, she had uh, blunt force trauma to the head, which had opened up uh, an eight and a half inch gash in her scalp and a seven and a half inch uh, uh, fracture of her skull. Uh, the, uh, probably uh, she was hit with either a golf club or a flashlight, both of which were found in the house. The other possibility was ligature strangulation. Uh, the ligature uh, knot and uh, tie around her neck was so tight that the uh, for, uh, that the medical examiner had to cut it off. It was very difficult to do. Now, here's the thing. We can imagine, any of us, whether if we have children or we know parents, we can imagine a parent in a fit of rage or sudden anger 
uh, striking, striking out, hitting a child harder than they planned to. The child goes sprawling, hits something, and uh, is severely injured. Um, it's unpleasant to think about, but it does happen. Now, any of you who are parents, can you imagine if you have no no record of, uh, no history of violence of any kind uh, against your children, can you imagine two parents suddenly deciding to strangle their daughter with uh, with a rope and uh, using a paintbrush handle as a fulcrum in the basement of their house the day of Christmas Day when they're planning the next day to go up to their uh, summer house and then from there down to Florida for uh, a Disney cruise uh, around New Year's time. Can you imagine them methodically, meticulously strangling this little girl for what would have been about five or six minutes? No, we can't imagine that. So that leaves us with saying, well, if the parents did it, then they must have done it by the blunt force trauma and the uh, and the ligature is just a setup. Now, let's go to the forensic evidence. From the on the entire crime scene from which we have to say is from this little girl's bedroom on the second floor down to the basement, the end of the basement where her uh, where she was found. No blood. Less than a teaspoonful of blood in that entire crime scene. Now, if you've got blunt force trauma that opens up an eight and a half inch gash in your scalp, the scalp is tremendously uh, vascular. Yep. Uh, you're going to have blood all over the place, oh, yeah. and yet no blood at the scene. The only one explanation for that. She had no blood pressure by that point, so she didn't bleed, which means the cause of death was the ligature strangulation, which, I mean, we can go on and on with this, but from a behavioral standpoint, that pretty effectively eliminates the parents right there before, without any other evidence uh, to bring to bear. Now you're speaking, the elimination would be by the forensic profiling. Well, a combination of the profile, the behavioral profile and the forensic, yeah. Yeah, okay. All right, all right. Wow. Okay. Uh, and, and this is something I didn't know. By the way, I, two years, it was about two years after um, that murder, I was, I, I spoke to, I had another case I was working and I spoke to the chief uh, of police of Boulder, Colorado. And he said, uh, I asked him about this carefully and uh, asked him his thoughts in converse, in the conversation about another matter. And something struck me that he said. He said, you know, a lot of cases, or, or I'm sorry, a lot of uh, uh, careers were ruined, intent, or were ruined by this case. I believe that. You know, so I thought, wow, you know, what aren't what, what don't we know about this? And obviously, a lot. So well, here's one of the problems. Uh, Boulder was averaging about one homicide a year. When you have one homicide a year, you don't have a whole homicide department. You don't need it. You use detectives from other places. Uh, in this case, the lead detective was a narcotics detective. Uh, um, you know, it's like uh, a local hospital may not see. Uh, a very esoteric uh, medical case. So you have to go to a specialist uh, who sees them all the time. That's essentially what uh, the FBI is compared to a lot of small local police departments. Mm-hmm. And yet, uh, and yet, I think this was such a high-profile case right from the beginning that the Boulder police uh, 
didn't want any help from anybody else. They were offered help from the uh, from the Colorado Bureau of Investigation, from the FBI, right on scene. Uh, they turned it all down initially. That's strange because if you don't have that homicide department, you'd think you would want more experience and veteran uh, personnel there handling it since these people didn't really have the experience to do so. I mean, one would think. Both of, both of my brothers are... Uh, doctors, but one is in emergency medicine and the other is in radiology. If, God forbid, I had to have open heart surgery, I guess technically, if they studied up, either one of them could do it. I'd sure rather have somebody who sees it every day uh, come mm-hmm. do that kind of surgery. And I think the analogy to uh, uh, criminal specialists is the same. In, indeed. Well, how, what would, how often would you say this happens, especially in, in cases of murder or serial killings where uh, egos and pride and personal politics get in the way of, uh, you know, having that help and that support that might be needed. Probably more than we would like. I mean, it goes both ways, uh, Joe, certainly. I mean, the FBI, particularly during the Hoover era, certainly had a reputation for trying to muscle in on cases and uh, take all the credit and therefore uh, uh, get the clearance record uh, for themselves. But, um, you know, I say... If there's somebody, if you've got a problem and there's somebody around who's got more experience than you to solve that problem, um, you ought to take the, uh, take the assistance. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I, I know that, uh, as the model for Jack Crawford in Silence of the Lambs, now we're going back some, uh, okay. a few years, John Douglas confronted, interviewed, studied scores of serial killers, assassins, mm-hmm. including Charles Manson. Right. Ted Bundy, um, Ed, Ed Gunn, ladder who dressed himself in the victim's peeled skin. This ain't pleasant stuff, man. No. Um, and, and using his uncanny ability to become both predator and prey, which is really uh, a mind-bending kind of thing, as you spoke about earlier, uh, John Douglas examines each crime scene reliving both the killer's as well as the victim's actions in his mind, creating these pro- their profiles, describing their habits and such, and predicting their next moves. That really summarizes, I think, um, and of course, you being there. Let me back up a minute here. How in the world did you get involved with John Douglas? Okay, uh, I am uh, a writer. I had written, uh, I, I, I'm documentary uh, television producer and I'd written a number of uh, thriller novels in the past and after I read Silence of the Lambs uh, I was uh, doing some work for NOVA, the PBS science series which is headquartered up in Boston at WGBH and I'd I'd, uh, written and produced some shows for them and around the time that Silence of the Lambs was being made into a movie I contacted the executive producer Paula Apsell and said, uh, Paula, I've read this book, Silence of the Lambs. It's really interesting, uh, very gripping. If it's any, if the movie is anything like the book, it's going to be a big success. I had no idea how big a hit it would be. I said, why don't we go in and uh, tell the real story behind Silence of the Lambs, what these profilers at the, the FBI Academy in Quantico are really like. So um, we went ahead and did it. The show uh, called Mind of a Serial Killer was uh, was very successful it was nominated for an Emmy uh, every time it was shown on PBS the uh, FBI's investigative support unit uh, 
was uh, besieged by more cases, which I guess is a double uh, request for more consultation, which I guess is a double-edged sword. A blessing and a curse, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> and then when uh, and when John Douglas got ready to retire a couple of years later, uh, he was already legendary within within law enforcement circles. But he called me and said, "Do you think anybody would be interested in my story?" And I said, "Well, John, I certainly am. Let's let's take it to New York and see who else is." And uh, we got several very nice offers. Uh, we ended up with Scribner, part of Simon and Schuster, um, and uh, the book Mindhunter, as, as we now know, was very successful. It led to other books: uh, Journey into Darkness, Obsession, uh, Anatomy of Motive, uh, Cases that Haunt Us, and most recently, Law and Disorder. Um, and we just became a team. Uh, I. I, I've been referred to as the uh, Dr. Watson to John Sherlock Holmes. Interesting. Boy, is that interesting. But it fits. And so, <laughs> my goodness. You, you know, you mentioned law and disorder just now. And I think we need to give some give some time uh, uh, to, to that. Uh, inside the dark heart of murder, failures of the criminal justice system and the use of behavioral profiling, criminal investigative analysis to exonerate the falsely accused. Again, uh, Law and Disorder, your newest, most recent work. Well, that's an interesting story, Doug, because while John was in the Bureau, obviously, he was always on the same side. He was on the prosecution side, the police side, and, uh, and that's as it should be. When he got out and he started getting requests for private consultation, uh, on both sides, uh, he got to see another aspect of the criminal justice system, which is what uh, people who are accused of crimes, uh, who the evidence may not be very strong or there may be something wrong with, uh, with the case. Um, and so he said, you know, it's time that we start uh, using our talents to two. So he got involved in uh, the case of the West Memphis Three in uh, West Memphis, Arkansas, in which three um, teenagers had been uh, accused uh, and convicted of killing three eight-year-old boys in what was characterized as a satanic ritual murder. Uh, And he got involved and uh, essentially proved that they couldn't possibly have done it. One of them... uh, Damien Eccles was actually on death row where he remained for 18 years until he was finally let out. Uh, uh, some of your, some of your listeners may have seen one of the, um, Paradise Lost movies on, uh, HBO. There were three actually about this case. And those, those, uh, documentary films probably saved Damien's life by keeping the case in the public eye. Uh, and then I told John around this time, I said, you know, I've studied this uh, Amanda Knox case, and uh, she's been convicted of murder in Italy uh, and sentenced to 26 years in prison. I said, I don't think she's done it. And John said, all right, don't tell me anymore. Just give me all the case materials, which we had at that point. He studied it for about a week or so, came back and said, you're right. Uh, she didn't do it. What do we have to do? And so we all became part of a uh, what became a tremendous effort to uh, to exonerate Amanda and her boyfriend uh, Raphael Selegito. and this was a case where we thought it was fairly easy. It was very obvious who had done it. Uh, there was a break-in, and uh, and this was a crime—the uh, murder of uh, Amanda's roommate uh, 
Meredith Kircher, uh, an English exchange student uh, in Italy. It was uh, a very straightforward, obvious uh, crime, and yet the police and the prosecutor didn't see it that way. And as a result, um, these two young people spent four years in maximum security prison before uh, before they were exonerated. Wow. Do you see this? I mean, uh, the what would it be the subtitle of the, the Law and Disorder Inside the Dark Heart of Murder, Failures of the Criminal Justice System and the Use of Behavioral Profiling and Criminal Investigative Analysis to Exonerate the Falsely Accused. Would you say, do you see a lot of that, the falsely accused? Well, fortunately, you don't see that much, but any, uh, uh, Joe, is too much. And we do see certain characteristic uh, elements to false accusations and convictions. Uh, and a law professor at the University of Virginia Law School named Brandon Garrett has uh, uh, actually assembled a list, an analysis of what goes into a false conviction. I can reel off some of them. Yeah. Uh, uh, jailhouse uh, snitches, uh, false confessions, of which I had no idea how many false confessions there were and how many causes of false confessions there were until I researched this book. Well, what's uh, a false John- confession? Okay, there, there's a number of ways you can get a false confession. Sometimes uh, people uh, confess falsely because they want the notoriety. Uh, okay. They're kind of sick. That, but that's that's a minor one. Uh, generally, it's... Um, it's because the police have badgered them into it uh, somehow. Um, for uh, example, I I could get either one of you guys, or you could get me, with the right uh, amount of time and resources. And by that I mean mainly other investigators and as much time as we needed to sleep deprive each other. And you could get me, or I could get you, to confess to anything, including alien abduction. Um, it's 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 not that right. hard, uh, and and that's one of the problems. The other thing is, in the case of the West Memphis Three, you had uh, one of the defendants, uh, a young man named Jesse Miss Kelly, who was uh, uh, had some uh, developmental problems, and the police just led him into uh, whatever they wanted him to say. And what's very interesting in both his case and Amanda Knox's case, uh, two completely different individuals. Uh, none of this was recorded until they got to the confession part. Uh, and yet, if you look at what happened, uh, even in the confession, Jesse is giving all kinds of bad information because uh, he doesn't know the answers, and the police are saying, no, uh, it wasn't, wasn't it this, Jesse, or wasn't it that? And he's saying, oh, yeah, right. So, uh, you know, this is uh, false confessions, unfortunately, are a fairly common phenomenon. You know, I, I mean, I think in most cases, in most cases, you know, it's not like the old cliches you he- used to hear about the Chicago or Los Angeles or New Orleans police, where they would beat a confession out of somebody. It's a little more subtle now, but it's still the same kind of thing. Uh, get somebody at their weakest point and sell them something they don't want to buy, essentially. Yeah, and I just, uh, I wasn't sure. I mean, I understand that some people do confess falsely for whatever their reasons are, but I didn't know if that extended to, you know, law enforcement trickery where, you know, they get you to admit that you were in some kind of general area of where a crime was committed, and therefore by admitting that they can then charge you. Uh, yeah, and look, Joe, if the police believe that the uh, that they've got the right suspect, they're going to do everything they can to get, uh, get him to confess. But uh, 
sometimes you can lose sight of uh, the forest for the trees, and you can get the wrong person to confess just so that you can have a case made. Mark Olshaker is our guest. He's an uh, Emmy Award-winning filmmaker, New York Times best-selling author. I've got to tell you something. Uh, I, I met Frank Serpico in our courthouse. Uh, now, Tom, my goodness, how time flies. I think this is 89. I'm thinking maybe maybe 92. I don't know. Um, it was on a case where he was appearing for the defense on a guy accused of arson, a fatal arson case. And, and he... and. It, it was interesting because I was, um, uh, I don't want to say consulting with, but I had done some work for uh, parallel work with the lead detective on the case for the prosecution. And, and I, you know, I just, I didn't feel right about the whole thing, uh, about the, the accused who was ultimately convicted. And Frank Serpico came in with, uh, uh, well, he came in and along with some others. And essentially, it was uh, the conviction was overturned uh, in this case. So uh, you know, and, and I'm sure you're familiar with Frank Serpico. Sure. Um, I, I that was kind of my first taste of the methodology of you know, kind of uh, wearing down a, a, a perpetrator to the extent that the guy didn't know which way was up. You know, but by the time things were over. I mean, if you're uh just like the uh, Koreans did, and the North Koreans did in the Korean War, if you can deprive someone of sleep long enough, you can get them into a state, a dreamlike state, where they really don't know what reality is anymore. And if you use the technique that police often use, uh, rightly, I think, uh, but that the police in uh, Perugia used on Amanda, uh, where they said, all right, if you weren't there, imagine what it would have been like if you were there. Um, and so they, she gave them what they wanted, even though well, none of it was true. Uh, you, you know, I, I sit here thinking I would never fall for that. But you and I both would, Doug. Uh, yeah. If we after, after they had us there for thirty six hours without sleep, we both would. I, I, exactly. I know. I, I'm right there with you. I, I yeah. I know that. Um, wow. Uh, okay. So the multitude of books you have, and folks, uh, any one of of uh, Mark Olshaker's books, uh, a treat. Uh, well, is that the right word? Uh, definitely informative. I'm, I'm fine with that word. Thank you. I, I, I I'm serious. I, I like it. I like I like your books. I like your your work products. I like, uh, of course. Uh, let's talk about your series. Is that okay? Your sure. Okay. Sure. Um, my wife is just when I told her, I, I'll tell you. I, I said, um, said, remember the series, or you know the series, uh, Mindhunter. And she said, oh, oh yeah, you know. I'm, and she she records it all on DVR. You know, DVR is the. I said, I'm going to have. We're going to. We're Joe and I are going to have. Uh, the gentleman Netflix. behind that, or Netflix. What Already I DVR'd for you. You said DVR. Or, I'm sorry, yeah, she's got it on that, well, whatever. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. All I know is I go in and it's on. Um, she was really excited. She said, wow, this is fantastic. She, she loves that series. Um, yeah, let's just talk about that. Uh, we're, we're very happy with it. Uh, David Fincher, I think, did a terrific job with, uh, even though the, uh, 
the main characters are the details of their lives are somewhat fictionalized and they change the names uh, that was the idea they were going to change the names of the good guys if you will so that they could give them the character traits they want but the criminals uh, would be given their own names their own personalities uh, the characterization of Ed Kemper and Jerry Brudos in the show I think were fantastic uh, very true to life and uh, we're very happy with the way uh, the series has respected the book and uh, used all the material. Uh, in fact, I'll tell you a funny story, Doug. I was being interviewed a couple of weeks ago um, by a, a Dutch journalist via Skype, and uh, I'm not giving anything really away for the people who, uh, people who haven't seen the series yet, but she said to me, uh, well, what actually happened to the principal, the school principal, who was uh, tickling the children's feet? And I said, well, I think that was um, that, that was made up for the series. And she said, no, it wasn't. That was in your book. And I said, it was? And she said, yeah. And I said, well, you've obviously written it, read it more recently than I have. And uh, uh, I apologized. And then I called John afterwards, and I said, uh, John, do you remember about the uh, principal who was tickling the kid's feet? And he said, yeah, somebody mentioned that to me. I'd completely forgotten about it. So, uh, so they used a lot, uh, a lot from the uh, book, even more than John and I remembered. And, and I gotta tell you, that's an amazing thing. Even the, I got a call today, uh, it, coincidentally, from the Pennsylvania Attorney General's Office Investigative Unit about a cold case, uh, that, that, that I'd, I'd been working on for, I don't know, 12 years. In fact, you should, you guys should take, you should take, John should take a look at this. Uh, well, actually, we, we kind of know our, I believe I know who did it, and I, so does the investigator. But, but nonetheless, um, where was I going with this? Except to say, uh, oh, he, he was, we, we were talking about the file, and I haven't seen the file, um, that particular, the entire file in, in probably three years. And he said, there's this, and he described the document. He said, "Do you know what this means?" And I'm thinking, "Man, I I don't remember writing that." But <laughs> you know, so exactly, I I get that. Um, I get that. So wow. But yeah, so this is a blockbuster, indeed so a blockbuster. We're very happy with the series, and we're delighted that it's been uh, renewed for its second season. Man, that's that's fantastic. I watched the first three episodes, and I, I do remember the first one. I'm gonna have to go back and and check out the other two. But yeah, it's it's definitely. Um, a great show and I plan on continuing to watch the rest of the season and uh, as my dad said earlier you know the shows like Criminal Minds and uh, these other shows on TV that deal with the FBI and their involvement in cases and the criminal profiling I've watched pretty much all of those too I know you have too yeah that's what my wife wanted to ask you or me to ask you Um, Criminal Minds are inspiration for Criminal Minds John Douglas absolutely we didn't profit from it, but uh, yes, the original uh, character that um, Mandy Patinkin played in the uh, series was definitely uh, based on John, as have, have many characters uh, in uh, in popular uh, television and, and movies. And uh, in fact, most of the cases in the first season, some way or other, related to it. But you know, you put something out there that's um, nonfiction. Uh, we, we can't copyright the cases, so uh, we we prefer to think of uh, Criminal Minds as uh, uh, homage to uh, to us and uh, to our books and to John's work. Right. Uh, but yeah, definitely. Uh, and uh, they've quoted us a couple of times on the on the show. And uh, and if you talk to the producers, they don't they don't deny that uh, 
Mind Hunter and the and these subsequent books were were certainly source material. Well, that's, that's fantastic. And, and by the way, I, I would urge any uh, true crime aficionado, anyone interested in true crime, anyone interested in cases, any one of uh, our guests' books. Um, pick any of them. Pick all of them. Uh, in fact, I, I'm missing a couple. I'm going to have to go and and, and uh, f- uh, fill my li- or complete my library. Mark Olshaker is our guest. We've got about uh, we only have about five minutes left with you. I can't believe how yeah, time flies. One last question I I I got for you, Mark. Is the serial killer or more serial killers or killers driven by? power and control or by sexual motivations? Well, I don't think you can separate them, Joe. Um, I think uh, we generally talk about serial predators as being interested in manipulation, domination, and control. And uh, all of those have a sexualized aspect to them. Even if uh, you're not, uh, if the offender is not actually raping the victims or uh, sexually molesting them in one way or another, it's still a sexual charge. I mean, if you think back to the son of Sam, uh, David Berkowitz, uh, he wasn't raping any of his victims. He was a fire starter, an arsonist, and then he started uh, killing uh, with a very uh, heavy handgun, a uh, charter arms bulldog, 44 Magnum. And uh, that was certainly a both the uh, fire starting and the Son of Sam murders definitely had a sexualized component to them. That's what uh, gave him his sense of power and control and and fulfillment, if you will. So, uh, yeah, you're at, you're you're absolutely on the right track, and I don't think you can you can separate out the uh, those motivating factors. Okay. Interesting. Uh, I got to slip a question in here with uh, minutes to spare. The Lindbergh baby. Any surprises there? I mean, do we... Yeah, very interesting. Uh, first of all, all kinds of loose ends. Uh, you could tell me any theory you want, a uh, hundred theories or a thousand theories, whatever you wanted to say, and I could blow a hole in any one of them, and yet one of them would be correct. Uh, one of the, the big issue all along has been, was Bruno ha- Richard Hauptman uh, guilty uh, of the crime, or was he uh, was he set up? Was he an innocent patsy? And uh, that's that's generally been the um, the uh, it's one or the other. Uh, right. But what we found in our investigation, and we went through the case materials and all of the testimony very carefully, what we concluded was that Houtman was definitely involved in the case. He almost it would be almost impossible for him not to be. But by the same token, it would be almost impossible for him to have done it by himself. So we we concluded after our investigation that Hauptman was involved, but he was not the only one. It was a conspiracy. Fantastic. I'm going to tell you something. I, I'd love to. Uh, I'd love to pay you. I'll, I'll wash your car. I'll do your <laughs> dishes. If I could spend like a day with you guys, um, you well, and John. Any time you want, Doug. Uh, this is fascinating to me, and, and I, we do hope you'll come back. Um, sure. Uh, I mean, we just scratched the surface, and again, uh, Mark Olshaker, the uh, Emmy Award. I think you're the first Emmy Award winning uh, Emmy Award winner we've had on our program. I, I'm not sure, John. I, well, He's, yeah, you're okay. So you're the first. So uh, thank you for that. Uh, oh, adding you. some adding some class to our show. Well, um, it's it's always great to be on with people 
who've got experience in the field and understand what we're talking about. Well, thank you. And Joe just and asked website. me. Your website. Your website. Mindhuntersinc.com? Mindhunters. Uh, it's, uh, we're, we're redoing it at the moment, so what, most of what you're going to see is going to be old. But, uh, yeah, that is our website. Um, but any of our books, you can just look on uh, Amazon or your local bookstore, and uh, you'll find them there. Fantastic. Mark, awesome. Mark Olshaker, thank you so very much for your thank gift of you time tonight. Well, you did a terrific interview. Uh, you've got a great show, and uh, I'll be happy to come back. All right. We had a great time. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. We'll be talking. And okay. if, you, if you see me on your doorstep, don't go worried. I'm just there to, like I said, wash your floor, wash your car, just so I can spend some time with you. In, in, uh, you know, so... I understand. If the doorbell rings, I'll know who it is. All right. <laughs> thank you, my friend. Thank you. Oh my goodness, folks! You've uh, we're out of uh, almost out of time here within a yeah, minute. We're out of time. We are out of time. And, actually, uh, a great show to come back to. You know, we were supposed to come back yesterday, but uh, due to the snow, snow emergency, and there was literally a, an emergency declaration. You couldn't leave your house. We got national guard had, here. Unless you had chains on your tires uh, or snow tires, you could have got a ticket or a four which wheel. has been lifted. Yeah. But before the show, just before the show started today. The old man came in here and said, "You know, the, they're calling for another two feet tomorrow and Saturday." So just what we, we got need. that to look forward to. Lots of fun. Uh, I don't know what a great program. I want to thank all of our guests. I want to thank Bill uh, McIntosh from Acosta Media, of course, and everyone who appeared. Thank you so much for listening and viewing on YouTube. And uh, hey, Joe, thank you, John Robertson, and Eric the Tech. And it's good to be back. Only to take off for New Year's. Can yeah. you believe 2018 right around the corner? Check out Hagman. Check out Patreon and sign up for the Hagman Report Forum if you haven't done so. And tune in tomorrow at 9, again at uh, 2, two. and then, of course, our flagship show at 7. Good night, everyone.